This program contains adult content. Is there a God? A big atheist. Really? What, am I an idiot? Come on. That yes, it would be nice if you could throw your sins and your responsibilities on someone else. But it's not true. It looks like far-left lunacy. I don't believe that it's true that religion is moral or ethical. You don't need to follow anybody! It's not human intelligence! If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? Hello and welcome to the Godless Revolution. Today is Sunday, September 8th. This is episode 264. I'm Dan Ellis. And I had just said we're not going to do the intro and we're doing it anyway. Let's just Because I just got into a groove, man. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. Uh, we're, we're very excited about today's episode. It should be a whole lot of fun. We have Christine Stenquist in studio with us. She's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Was, I, was it okay for me to jump absolutely, in there? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, very absolutely. excited to be here. Very excited to have you here as well. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. what, what's been going on for everybody for the last week? I got my lathe. Oh, yay. Yeah. And you've been making stuff. I've been making stuff. you made shit. a goblet. I made, I made a, what looks like something out of Indiana Jones goblet. I made, one of, I made a charred whiskey glass and a beer mug. Ooh. These people make this thing sound hard to do. But yeah. I, I don't think it was that difficult. Yeah. Well, they're not going to tell you. This is the thing that I do for a living, and it's, it's so, so easy. easy anybody could do it. Like, I went to Home Depot and bought a 4x4 four four stud and cut it into blocks, and I, now I'm making shit. And I'm like, this, this ain't hard. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you haven't run into any potential problems yet with yes, actual I did. usage. And... Oh, no, I, I drank out of it last night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Whiskey tasted fine. Nice. Yeah. What were you going to say for problems, though? Oh, this morning I was trying to make another one, uh-huh. and it blew up on the lathe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Blew up? Well, like I had it in there and I was trying to carve out the inside of the uh, bowl or the glass and I caught the tool on the inside and it shook it and it just shot off the lathe and broke oh. the bottom. Oh, damn. So. You I, had your you had your protective eye gear on. Yep. And, and a cup. You were safe. Oh, well, I got my my full fucking Kevlar vest. vest and... No, it's not. It's just a fancy looking thing to wear, but it works to catch all the wood chips in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nice, nice. And you, sir, we didn't see you last week. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. I was just, so my mom's in a nursing home, right? And she mm. didn't wake up yesterday morning and oh. she still hasn't woken up, but she, oh, I mean, she's no. not dead, but like, oh, <laughs> she in a coma. I don't, they don't, I don't really know exactly what's going on. Really sleepy. While she's been out, her roommate died. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Said she doesn't even know yet. So that's one thing that's been going on. And then also I was wondering, like, where are all the conservative comedy shows? Um, like, where's the conservative John Oliver or Trevor Noah? Or I think it's that Tammy Laren. I can pronounce it. Tammy Laren. Yeah, Tammy Tommy, Laren. Tommy Laren. Tommy Laren. Isn't yeah. that a Fox Tommy News Laren. anchor? No, she she tries to be funny, but she's not. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I was just it just occurred to me there there aren't any of those like satire shows or even hard hitting with the comedy edge like. John Oliver for conservatives. They're probably all on like the blaze, but they don't do good. Well, it's, it's when they try to do comedy, it's all just mean spirited shit. Like it, it, I think that's probably why they don't have any shows because what are they going to do? Look at these people being compassionate and caring about their fellow human beings. What a bunch of fucking pussies. 
Obama put mustard guess, on a hot dog. <laughs> those those fucking cucks, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they just lack creativity and intelligence. That could be it, too. That's probably a big part of it. And for anybody... And who- you're a Republican, right? I am not a Republican. Oh, okay. oh. oh. Shut your dirty mouth. <laughs> this was going to be a tea party show. <laughs> uh, and for those of you who haven't already guessed because of the sound of my voice, I'm getting over a cold, so... If I sound a little stuffy or or different, that's why. Well, I should have come then last week because I, feel... I didn't want to give it to you guys. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel okay. I mean, my, yeah, head, so, so my head's just, a little cloudy, but... So we just stick ourselves in a small room with little ventilation. You're welcome. Yeah. You're very, very <laughs> welcome. I'm sure it's not contagious anymore. It's been it's been about a week. Um, But uh, the only other thing with me, uh, sick, we did get a venue for the debate that I will be doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I will be at the University of Utah campus. I can't remember exactly which building, but I'll be sure to keep everybody updated as that progresses. Um, and I'm sure I'm, it's going to be fucking terrible. It's my first formal debate, so I'm sure I'll suck, but it'll be fun anyway. It'll be a learning experience. I think you'll do great, man. Yeah. yeah. You're going into it with the right attitude. Well, <laughs> so when we were in Mexico, um, I was talking to all of our friends. We, there was the same night, I believe, that Grant fell out of the van. <laughs> And then we all laughed forever and we're all <laughs> super drunk and in one of the, in one of our rooms at the resort and we're all just chatting and I was talking about the debate coming up and they started asking me questions like, well, let's just do a mock debate. So they started asking me questions and I don't really remember a whole lot about what I was saying, but the next morning they were like, dude, you were really good. Like drunk as fuck. You were still <laughs> <laughs> super coherent and like, you know, handling all of the hard questions that we were throwing at you. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't remember what they were. Can you guys refresh my memory? Like, if I said something great, you'll have to let me know what it was because I don't remember. So you're saying we need to pregame the debate? Apparently, maybe. I don't know. Uh, they were like, well, Hitchens used to, you know, get out there drunk and he'd on be stage. really drunk. And I'm like, yeah. There are also a couple debates that he took part in where I think he was a little too drunk. So <laughs> there's a fine line you got to walk, and it's a difficult one to tread. Um, but we do have Christine Stenquist in studio with us, and we're very super much. I can't even begin to tell you how excited we are to have you here. Well, thank you, Dan. No, this is awesome. So I went and heard you speak for Atheists of Utah, what, like three, four weeks ago now? It's been been a minute. But I was very, very impressed with your talk and with you as a person and the points you're making and the work that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. We know that you are the founder and executive director of Truce and Truce... It stands for what? It's an acronym, and it stands for Together for Responsible Use in Cannabis Education. And thank you for having me, and thank you for showing up to that event. We had some technical difficulties, but we were able to get through it. <laughs> um, I am a I am a brain tumor patient survivor. I still have partial of the tumor, but I started advocating on medical cannabis access, oh my heavens, probably about seven years ago here in Utah. Um I'll tell you my story. Yes, please do. <laughs> Bunker down, boys. Um, so you survived a brain cancer patient. I did. I have. I'm, I'm something similar to that. <laughs> no, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was. I was making a joke. I was being a dick. Uh, <laughs> Apparently, what's new? So All right. You had, you, had a, you had a brain tumor. I did and do. Um, oh. I have a benign brain tumor. Um, it's called an acoustic neuroma. In 1996, at the age of 24, I was working at Lakeview Hospital that's here in uh, Davis County. And um, I was walking specimens back from the emergency room to the lab. Had a shot of pain across my face and got dizzy with vertigo and, and sort of passed out. 
woke up in the emergency room with colleagues around me and concerned that I had passed out and started doing some testing. They found a mass, but they felt like it was unremarkable. The The radiologist sort of brushed it off as nothing of importance. Little did he know that for years I'd been battling migraines and that this was just another symptom that needed to be addressed. So I took my scans, my CT scans, to my fa- family care physician and said, hey, what's this bubble? What's this mass right here? And he says, that's a little concerning. Let's get an MRI and see what's going on. And that's when they discovered the acoustic neuroma. It sits on my equilibrium nerve, my hearing nerve, and my facial nerve. And because it sat so close to the brainstem and they were concerned about its growth, um, its growing rate, they decided to go in and operate. So during surgery, um, they got 40% of the tumor removed and then they hit a blood vessel. And I started to hemorrhage. Yeah. I started to hemorrhage and I slipped into a coma for a few days. And when I woke, I had stroked, and so I spoke like a stroke victim. I had left-sided weakness. Um, I lost the hearing in my left ner- my left ear, and I had significant mm-hmm. amount of facial pain. Smack that microphone. I did smack that. I'm <laughs> so in- microphone. Damn microphone. <laughs> I had significant amount of facial pain going on. Uh-huh. Um, again, I was 24 at the time and a newly divorced mom with two small children, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And unable to return to the workforce, I had to file for disability, apply for food stamps, go on housing, and life took a dramatic turn. I was set and slated to start school. I was going into nursing school up at Weber State, and like I said, life took a a drastic turn. And so that continued. That's got to be scary, right? I mean, to to think you're fine one day, be at work, and then the next day wake up in the emergency room and... And nobody hear that you have a brain tumor. Like, yeah, nobody prepares you for that either. No, yeah. At 24, you're like, do do do, life yeah. is going on, and here's my five year plan. And that was not in the five year plan. Well, and at 24, <laughs> like, like you, you you still feel fairly invincible, right? Absolutely, you feel invincible. And even I was when the doctor told me it was a tumor. I remember I just didn't really skip a beat. I'm like, okay, so what are we doing? Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, I've got shit like, to do on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> like, can we get this taken care of? Yeah. Did, did, did the gravity doctor. of it, uh, did the gravity of having a brain tumor sink in at the time or was it no. still just like, oh, it's no big deal. They can fix it. it or, or did you still have that feeling of invincibility? Or? I, it, okay. Well, so I was given a month notice, um, to get my affairs in order. I had a 50% oh. chance oh, of Jesus. survival. And so it was very, even in those, those, that month, it, Life was very surreal. I felt very disassociated from it. Like, this can't be real. This isn't really happening. I'm like, I'll just go and do this thing and it will be fine. It didn't, the gravity of it didn't hit me until I think I was being wheeled back into the room. And I'm like, this, this may be the last, this may be the last images I see. It was very, it was, it was even before that, um, the night before surgery, I did not want to sleep. I didn't want to spend my last moments of existence sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, damn it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. This is this it's, is awesome. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just had to slow this down. <laughs> yeah, I make you cry first. <laughs> it's a requirement. Um, I didn't want to spend my last waking moments sleeping, so I spent a lot of time watching my children sleep. Um, walking the halls of my apartment walking outside, just taking in sort of what it might be the last moments of 
this reality, this plane of existence that I understood. And um, that was really hard. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Um, you start bargaining with whatever's out there that might be listening to you. Um, at that point in time, at 24, I had really lost what little faith I had in a higher entity. Um, I was raised LDS. And um, at this point, in tw- at 24, I had moved to Utah. So my, I'm from Miami, FYI. Oh, okay. I'm from Miami. So I moved. You were to- Mormon in Miami? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There was a few of us. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I've got to go to Mecca. I have to go to Utah. <laughs> I've got to go to Mecca. <laughs> oh, my heavens. That's a story unto itself. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I moved to Utah. And um, at, by the age of 24, after living here, I think three three years, four years, it's very different than the mission field. Um, and I, I just wanted really nothing to do with it anymore. But that night before surgery, I found myself um, not praying as much as I was, I feel like I was bargaining. Mm-hmm. I was bargaining for more time. I was calling out to an entity that I didn't even believe in anymore, just bargaining for my life. You On know? the off chance that there's anything there out be. there and there's anything I can do to make this better. That's, yeah. yeah. And on, and I remember saying, I don't, I don't know what's supposed to happen, but I want more time and I'll do anything for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted more time with my babies. I wanted more time to see them grow up. At 24, life wasn't supposed to be over for me yet. Mm. So going into surgery that next morning, um, watching myself going down the hall, I just just remember telling myself, you're going to fight. You're going to fight like hell, and you're not going to give up. And that was my thoughts going in. Not like I had a whole lot of control. There's a guy with a scalpel screwing around <laughs> in my head. It's not like I'm going to have like do a whole lot, but I was determined no matter what, no matter what the recovery looked like, my resolve was I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here for my kids. And so coming out of surgery several days later, one, dude, the hair on my legs was long. I wasn't anticipating that. I shaved before I went in. And so that was a little alarming because um, then I knew that I'd, I'd been out of it for some time. And when they finally told me, you know, it's been four days, it was it was a little a little disconcerting. Like, um, why has it been four days? Yeah. Like, what ha- would you do? Yeah. <gasps> what happened? What did you do <laughs> What <me? laughs> did you do? That was – so coming out of that was, was hard, but the, it was – the pain, the pain was tremendous. Like half my face was just on fire. The nerve damage that was done was just excruciating. Um, and I had a lot of problems with swallowing, being incubated and, you know, mm-hmm. um, it affected my throat. And so I was having problems eating and I was having a problems staying put. <laughs> I kept coding. And so I was in the um, intensive care unit for about nine days finally um got me stable and i i went home and started my new existence with this sort of broken body and being a single mom and figuring out how how do i how do i take care of us now <laughs> like i said i applied for disability food stamps housing and um this continued my life for the next 16 years i did meet a wonderful human being who i married um we uh 21 years we were married and it was hard. It was a lot of struggle with, with a brain tumor and 
dealing with the illness. Um, I was bedridden and housebound for 16 years with this tumor. I wasn't able to go back to work. I raised my children from the bed, from the couch. It was a really hard, hard struggle. Um, About seven years ago, I hit a pain wall, which I had done many times before. But at this point in time, I was on a fentanyl patch. Um, I was getting Dilaudid shots for breakthrough pain through the emergency room. I was on a pain management thing with my doc. This had been my life for the past 16 years. I was tired of coming down off the opiates. You hit a ceiling. You know, there's only so much you can take of those, um, of that medication, and then you really are jeopardizing your life. Mm. And so I stayed very close with my physician during during these years. I never doctor shopped. I stayed with the same physician for eight years. And when our insurance changed, I went to another physician. I was him with him for the other eight years. I stayed there. Um, but the problem with, with where the therapy I was on is there was just no end in sight. There was no reprieve from pharmaceutical drugs. It was just try this drug and do this. Try this. Let's try this. Well, and it's not that we're, it's not we're, we're not improving your condition no. at all. We're just putting a Band-Aid on it yeah. so That's that you exactly, can cope, right? I mean, and, then, yeah. and honestly, for your listeners, they need to understand the role of, of pharmaceutical medicine isn't cure. It's not a cure. You You don't. You don't have a good business model if you're curing people. So just be mindful of what we're, we're using pharmaceutical drugs for. And so for me, I was, I was done. I was so fed up with this cycle. I'm um, at that point in time, I'd been on over 45 different medications, um, aside from the opiates, all, everything you can think of under the sun. Because once, you know, once the body starts to have trauma, Due to health, everything sort of has a ripple kind of effect. Cascades, right? It yeah. does. I got one diagnosis after another piled on top of things, and it just it was avalanching on me. And so, at this time, seven years ago, I wasn't able to eat. I had lost my appetite. Pain had. I was in a pain cycle where I was doing some cyclical vomiting with migraines after migraines, just daily migraines. And um, that I went to my doctor and I said, I, I want to try cannabis. I want to, I hear it will help with the nausea and maybe I can get back on my meds again and, and just keep food down. Cause at this point, my husband was taking me to the bathroom, taking and helping me bathe, like just trying to, to physically care for my body as much as possible. And I wanted some strength back. The doctor encouraged me not to do anything illegal. At the time, I had come to him and said, there's this stuff called spice that's sold in the <laughs> smoke shops and it's yeah. supposedly legal. I have to understand, I'm a very, um, I, I live in a very conservative area in Utah, in Davis County. It's, it's not, it, there's, I was very naive. I could just say that. I was very naive as to what this was. Um, and so when I went asking him, I thought, well, this stuff could be a substitute I could use. He told me not to do anything illegal and he sent me to another pain clinic. I'd been to many pain clinics at this point. And at this pain clinic, they started me on a prescription called Marinol. Marinol is um, synthesized THC. THC is a molecule that is in the cannabis plant that induces euphoria, gets you high. So this was a synthesized man-made drug to simulate the, the cannabis plant, the cannabinoid THC. Um, they started me on that therapy, and for about two weeks, I had some mild relief of my nausea. I was able to start keeping some applesauce down and um, still drinking my Insure, you know, just, just doing what I could to get it. But it wasn't working. The side effects were just becoming too pronounced, and I it was a, now another failed drug therapy for me. Before I gave it up, though, I ventured onto the Internet, and I started doing some research on Marinol specifically. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to find out if other patients were finding tricks to this. Like, was, was it better if you used it on an empty stomach? Was it better if you did it at night? I wanted to hear what other patients' experience was. Mm. This led me down the rabbit hole, which is the internet. <laughs> when you start researching for things, um, I started reading about other patients, other cancer patients who said, forget about Marinol. Try whole plant, whole plant cannabis. Try, and, and then I started reading words like cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and CB1 and CB2, like all this terminology was coming at me and I didn't understand what any of it was. But I started diving in and I started researching more and more and I thought, there is some real, some really good stuff here. I came across the, the study on Marinol and whole plant smoking cannabis that was done in the 80s. And that actual cannabis had the better results than the Marinol, the FDA approved drug, even though Marinol moved on through the trial and became an approved drug. So that got me thinking, well, maybe there's some validity to this. And so um, that ventured that 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 led me to a, a call with my father. I had to talk to my dad about this discovery. You know, I, I, I want to try cannabis. I want to see if this actually works. And aside from my dad just being my dad, the reason for the call was my father's a narcotics officer. Oh. And how old were you at this time? I was 24 okay. at the time. Okay. Uh, oh, excuse me. No, this was years and seven years ago. So I was like, I was 40 at the okay. time. So I'm 40 years old. I've been dealing with a migraine since I was 20, or excuse me, with a brain tumor since I was 24. And, you know, that's got to do something to your psyche too, right? To, oh, it, to be in pain for that amount mm -hmm. of time. And it does. To be on opioids for that long. like Well, and just the isolation that a patient experiences. People don't understand chronic illness. You start to live a very isolated life. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you don't feel of worth to the community because you're just a drain on the system. You're a drain to your family, your friends. You know, every time you they call and ask you, hey, you want to go do something? You make the plans and then you have to cancel, you know, the day before and you know, a few hours before. Or you have to leave in the middle of it. It makes for a very hard and mm. isolating life, for sure. Difficult to maintain relationships. Sure. Absolutely. And yeah. all relationships, even with your own family members, mm -hmm. you know, aside from your immediate family that's in the home. But even that's a strange relationship when your your children are now caregivers at such a young age that, that there's some there's layers. There's resentment that's built. There's sorrow that, build, that builds. There's a loss that goes on for them. They 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 don't get the experience of a childhood they should have. You know, and I I need to be careful about should haves and could haves and would haves. We all don't get out of childhood unscathed. We right. all have our traumas that we experience, and it it builds and strengthens our character. So, I don't want to you know take that away from my kids because I think they're incredible human beings because of their experience. But as a, as a mother, it's not the life I wanted to give them. If it wasn't the experience I had anticipated in my mind, you yeah. know, jogging suits, matching, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, you know, a PTA stuff. I don't know. I it, being it sick, isn't what you had imagined for yourself or your family. No, we spent yeah. many, 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 many hours in emergency rooms. My children have slept on pillows and blankets in emergency rooms, eating graham crackers and, and juice boxes from emergency rooms. I can't explain to you that, that that's traumatizing as a mom to know that that is their outing for the week, <laughs> you know, or keeping them home from school because we had nobody to babysit them. So they spent, you know, a good chunk of the time all night in the emergency room. They needed time to sleep the next day. So it, it chronic illness truly affects not just the family, 
it does affect the community. It, it truly does. So it, it was a very traumatizing experience. Um, so to find and ho- hopefully find something that could offer a remedy or at least alleviate some of my symptoms, at this point, you'll try anything. Mm-hmm. But the call to daddy was hard. That was really hard. <laughs> and you say that he's a, a DEA officer? He's a narcotics officer. Oh, okay. So he did undercover narcotics in Miami where drugs really. <laughs> yeah, that's where they, that's where they arrive really, for distribution. Right. Sure. So my dad, you know, was a practicing officer in the 70s and the 80s. In the 70s, if some of you all, your listeners remember, um, Castro dumped his criminally insane and, and um, mentally disturbed onto the shores of Miami. Um, that's when we had some serious drug war issues coming on on the Miami front. So my father saw a lot of ugliness um, because of of the drug war. And so asking him, what's your thoughts about cannabis, dad? <laughs> you know, I didn't know what he was going to say. I knew in my mind I had a resolve that I was going to do it anyway, but I really, really wanted his blessing. Mm. It was important to me is, is – um, that he just was supportive. Well, and it, it's not something that you'd want to try to hide from him either, right? I mean, you want to be well, authentic and open and honest with your parents. And so right. you you do want to make sure that he's on board with this. Otherwise, that's going to be a part of you that you have to set aside and, and keep hidden from him, right? Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't want to. I wanted to be honest with what I was what I was contemplating. And um, without skipping a beat, he was supportive. He says, Chrissy, you should try it. You should try it. He was hearing stories on the news down in Florida. He's still in my, um, he's still in Florida. Um, the geriatric community there in Florida is very open to using cannabis, those baby boomers. So a lot of news segments were popping up for him. So he was, he was warming up to, to it and he's like, you should try it. You should see what happens and, and see if it can help. And I told him, well, daddy, I'm, I'm in a state that's not legal. I, I don't know what to do. Like, he's like, he's like, Chrissy, I'm sure you can find a bag. <laughs> I, I bet there is at least one bag somewhere in Utah. <laughs> it's and, doable. And this is how you get away with it and hide it from the cops. <laughs> this is how you do it. <laughs> um, and it's the hard, the hard thing about that was trying to find it. I had to turn to my then teenage daughter. She was 19. <laughs> Say, sweetie. <laughs> Can you help mommy find some weed? (laughs) (laughs) Do you any of your friends maybe dabble? Yeah. This is a very different 1980s don't do drugs commercial. (laughs) (laughs) So I asked her, I said, do any of your friends use cannabis? Because I'm, you know, my kids didn't play soccer, but they played baseball. But I'm a baseball mom. You know, like I I didn't have that in my circle of friends. Mm. Um, And at 40, it's it's really hard to find unless that's, that's your circle. And she said, yeah, I do. And I can find some. And I said, because I'm going to go try this spice stuff. And she's like, oh, God, Mom. <laughs> like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Please don't do that. Connected me with her little friend who, too, was 19 at the time. And I started asking her a bunch of questions. She taught me how to use cannabis out of a pipe. Got me my first bag. <laughs> and that was just starting my education. Honestly, I learning the street side of this or the traditional side of the cannabis market and then learning what patients were experiencing in other communities was it was interesting because I kept reading on the Internet. After doing this for um, got my first bag, 
got relief. Within two weeks, I was walking in my home again using my cane. I was still using my cane and hobbling, but I was I was getting my strength back. And just to clarify to your audience, it's not that cannabis was a magic cure to what was ailing me, but it was offering me symptom relief. I was able to sleep. I was able to keep food down and I was able to keep water in me. And offering that symptom relief really started improving my health. Well, yeah, when you combine all of those together, that right. really leads well, to improving your life. Right. So it's, it's you know, I, I'm very careful about not saying that cannabis cured me, but the symptom relief was absolutely amazing. So after six months of doing this, an unexpected <laughs> side effect happened. I was getting pain relief. So I started kind of skipping my dosages of my narcotics and replacing it with cannabis. Kept doing that. After eight months, I found my way to Capitol Hill because I said, damn it, I'm coming. I've come off all my meds. I need to share this with others. There are people dying in the state from opioids. There are chronic pain patients. There are people who are missing out decades of their lives because of illness and disease. This could help them. This could offer some relief. So you just stopped taking the opioids during this period? Like mm -hmm. just weaned yourself off weaned of them? Weaned myself and, off. And were using cannabis exclusively? Absolutely. Oh, wow. Did your doctor know at this point? Yes. Had you... Yes, I did inform my physician what I was doing and they were amazed. I was still attending the, the pain clinic. And the pain clinic does have a rule, most pain clinics do, that if you test positive for cannabis or illegal drugs, they will not help you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fine because I wasn't needing prescriptions yeah. from them. At this point in time, I was just getting trigger point injections is where they go in and they de deaden the nerves. So I was getting p trigger point inject injections around my face, my eye, my neck, my shoulders, all all the knots and all the damage. Um, so that, that really wasn't a need. I didn't need them to write prescriptions. Mm. And I think the physician was just curious as to how this is going to go. I suffer from a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, which is terminal, and there is no cure for it. It is unretractable pain, and it is one of the toughest pains to treat. It's just, it's just not treatable. So for this pain physician to watch somebody who traditionally, you know, the, a patient like this, they just traditionally throw their hands up. Um, he was intrigued by what was happening. Well, he's used to just offering palliative care at that right. point, yeah. right? Not right. not seeing somebody who's actually improving and, and right. getting better. So after six months, at the six-month mark, I stopped going to him. I appreciated I thanked him for his time, and I thanked him for, you know, just being with me during those six months. And Matt, like I said, made my way to Capitol Hill because I figured more people needed to hear this. I needed to I needed to reenact Schoolhouse Rock video. <laughs> this is how Bill becomes a law. <laughs> Aloha, everybody. This is Nico Gonzalez, former Jehovah's Witness and a content producer for the Conversations with God podcast. Be on the lookout for my own show, coming soon, called If I Was God. You're listening to The Godless Revolution. You know, I've always been so suspicious of religion, but I must say, I think there's something rather chic about having a real priest at a wedding. <laughs> Are you a real priest? Yeah. Do you, do you see your brother? Oh, I don't really speak to my brother. Oh, God, how desperately sad. Why is that? Oh, um, well... Maybe you, you don't have no, to. No, no, that's okay. Does he not approve of what you do, of your choices? No, it's not that, it's not that. Is he, is he not in the church? No, he's not in the church. Oh, it must be so hard. Well, it's mainly hard is it because... he's mummy's favourite? Because he's a paedophile. Oh. I'm aware of the irony of that. <laughs> <laughs>
rejoining the Godless Revolution podcast now. So I made my way to Capitol Hill, and that first year on Capitol Hill was 2014. And at the time, there was, um, let me back up a little bit, before I made my way up to Capitol Hill, as I was at home, um, my other child, my oldest son, started teaching me on how to use the internet. At this time, I hadn't been on the internet. I got to jump right over my space and didn't even have to worry about that. I didn't know anything about Facebook, didn't know anything. Uh, 1996 is when I went down. That's when the World Wide Web came up. And I, you know, I missed that. I missed that train. So he started teaching me about Facebook and how to engage with individuals on Facebook in group chats. You could find different groups that were like selective to your disease states or, or interests or whatever, you know. Mm. And so I started to find the, you know, different groups, the MS groups. I started to find the brain tumor groups, the migraine patient groups, the trigeminal neuralgia groups, and then broadened. I went into the, to the Parkinson's groups and I went into the epilepsy groups. And started finding patients who made comments about cannabis. Um, you can search engine up in the groups, different keywords. And so anytime anybody said those keywords, I'd read their comment. If it was an intelligent comment or a, a question, I would private message them, told them who I was, what I was trying to do, and ask them if they were interested in starting a movement in Utah. Most of the times I got a little bit of a chuckle and people tell me it will never happen here in Utah. <laughs> oh, bless your heart for uh, trying. Yes, our, <laughs> bless your heart. Yes, I got that a lot. But in the same breath, people were intrigued, you know, um, and so they joined the little Facebook group. And so I continued educating within that group. I would find articles, um, science, anything that was supportive of medical cannabis that was reputable not just the fringe stuff that needed to be reputable um, sources. And I started educating this little group of individuals on cannabis. And at the same time, I made my way up to Capitol Hill. During the session, I was trying to educate. This isn't the best time to educate legislators, FYI, for your <laughs> listeners. Please don't bombard the legislators in the middle of the session with new information. It's just a little too much. <laughs> but I, being a novice, didn't know. Um, I just showed up during the session because there was a, a cannabis piece of legislation that it was being run. I had met um, a mother who was who has a child who has epilepsy. She was making her rounds to the coffee shops the year before saying, hey, we're going to run a CBD legislation. For your listeners, CBD is a cannabinoid, a cannabinoid that is non-psychoactive um, that, that is promoted for epilepsy. So they were trying to run legislation so that they could have access to that in the state. At the time, across the country, no legislation had been run like this at all. Everything was whole plant access to cannabis. And so for this to be happening in Utah was kind of amazing. It was amazing and unique. And these mothers were from Utah County. Again, for your listeners who are in Utah, you know what that means. Mm -hmm. Probably the most conservative county in the entire state. And these Utah mo County moms, Mormon moms, were out there advocating for access to this, this um, oil for their babies. At the same time, I was up there saying um, THC is not recreational. They were branding THC as recreational ca cannabinoid and CBD was the medicinal one. And that was not proper science. And I was being a little bit of a nerd about it and saying, no, 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 that's Push not what Dr. Raphael. Actually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's not accurate. And I'm really frustrated because Marinol is nothing but THC. Yeah. And like I told you earlier, it's an FDA-approved yeah. drug. 
Yeah. And that's what they're saying and promoting as mm-hmm. recreational. I'm like, okay, one, you sound a fool. Sweet. So, so the stop. FDA is selling <laughs> recreational drugs now. <laughs> well, and it's recreational because you can't grow it in your backyard. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the education process during this session wasn't the best timing. The mothers asked me politely if I could just simmer down. <laughs> Could you just simmer down now? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like let them get this this piece of legislation passed. Um, normalizing, you know, getting people comfortable with it. And I This is I a good obliged. first step. From that's, here we can do other things. That's what that's what I was told. And yeah. respectfully, I understood where the mothers were at. I did. I did. I was compassionate to what they were doing. It was an amazing thing that they were trying to do. My concern was the messaging because I was going to have to come up behind them and reteach and relearn and, and, and just educate everybody on the correct science. And so I was asking, please, just don't don't say that THC is like you want me to simmer down. Can we talk about maybe no. altering some of your language yeah. around this? Yeah. That it's not going to be that much more difficult for me. And you've got those competing interests there where we do. But we were all yeah. on the same side in the right, same right. breath. So mm-hmm. it was really yeah. sort of a weird it was it was challenging, you know. Um, I had a lot of respect for these mothers for doing this. A tremendous amount of respect for them for coming out because it it is it does take a lot of guts. And at this point in time, they were just saying they wanted access. Nobody in the state was claiming they were using it or that it was benefiting them. That was not the language going on. I was the silly one on the hill saying I was still using my cane at the time too, and I'm like hobbling around telling people, no, no, it works. I use it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I am not like just trying to educate people, and so I I respect what the mothers tried to do. It's been a long, long journey. It's been a a tough and and at times very um, strained journey in the advocate in the advocacy world between CBD and THC. They wanted so desperately for so many years to to make that a combative thing. And I just don't want it to be. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. People are going to gravitate what works best for them. And if CBD is what they want and it works for them, it's nobody else's business and they shouldn't poo-poo on it. That's mm-hmm. just my personal opinion. But we moved forward. We got through that 2014 session the ladies, after like 13 revisions to that bill, bless their hearts, they were able to get it passed. That was fantastic. They got it passed. Problem is there was no brick and mortar establishment. Everything that they were had to procure was across state lines and they were still breaking federal law by transporting. So it wasn't really that great of a bill, but that's all the legislators were willing to give them. So we have to applaud that step. It was a step, you know, the nose in the tent, you know, camel's nose in the tent, as it were. Mm-hmm. It started opening up awareness. And and I think across the country, it changed. It was the first CBD-only bill across the country. Senator Urquhart and uh, Representative Gage Froer were the, were the sponsors for that. And so set the rest of the country. They started following that piece of legislation. And now we have 17 states that have CBD-only oil bills because they followed the tr- the Utah model. That wasn't enough for me. I was frustrated by it. <laughs> so was Utah the first state yes. to get the CBD oil? Wow. Yes, nice. we were. We were absolutely the first state. So which it which is kind of amazing and neat and unique and I think we should be proud of that. Oh, um, yeah. We were raising awareness across the country. Utah really. can be mm-hmm. a little progressive about a few things here and there. We can. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare, but it's, it's rare, but it should happens. be celebrated when it happens. Absolutely. So um, we get that passed a few months later. And this is something else I didn't know, people, for your listeners. 
don't bother anybody in the month of April. They're recovering after the session. (laughs) (laughs) I was ready to go. The session ended and I'm like making phone calls and I didn't know proper etiquette. And people are like, you guys are done with that. Can we start on the next year? Can we start on next year's? (laughs) They're like, well, slow down. Give us to May. Can you just give us to May? So I met with, um, I, I put in a phone call, another phone call and request to meet with a gentleman named Connor Boyack. He runs Libertas Institute. It's a libertarian think tank. And I reached out to him and I said, you know, I, I read your article. He, he wrote the story about one of these moms, these Utah County moms that wanted to use access to cannabis. And that's what sort of blew up. Sanjay Gutta got a hold of this mm-hmm. story and it blew up across the country. Mormon mom wants to use cannabis for a kid. <laughs> you know, it's very <laughs> oh, sensational. No. Right, right. So Connor Boyack is the one that sort of, that wrote that story that mm. sort of broke the idea that, you know, CBD, that, that this, somebody might want to use CBD. He saw the, the weed documentary with Dr. Sanjay Gutta and thought there's got to be somebody here in Utah who might want to do that. He reached out to the Epilepsy Association or Foundation, excuse me, Association, talked to the president. The president said, yes, I have a mother who's wanting that has a child with Dervais syndrome who does potentially want to use cannabis. And then that's how that story broke. So I go back to Connor and I say, this isn't enough. Can I meet with the epilepsy moms? Can you you know, come be in a meeting with all of us so that we do it. I brought a cannabis journalist with me who's also a Crohn's patient. Sorry, honey. Oh, you're Just fine. Just touching your leg. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling up the co-hosts. I like this podcast. He's like, it's, it's fine. Little <laughs> no, no, you're good. I mean, I'm a firefighter. We, it, it, it's, things get much stranger in a fire department. <laughs> I feel like that's a podcast for another time. Oh. I'm sure I've talked about it before. Oh yeah, he's told us several stories <laughs> oh, about what goes on in the in the <laughs> fire station. <laughs> um, so we had this meeting. We sat down. It was me and my friend, um, the cannabis journalist, who was educating me on cannabis. She'd been writing for a decade. She was a ghostwriter for one of the OGs growers for High Times. Mm. So she knows a lot of the cannabis science. She's doing a lot of the interviews for all the the researches not only nationally, but internationally. So she was a tremendous amount of resource and information. And I'm going to throw her name out there because she's amazing. Her name's Angela Baca. And she really did educate me on cannabis. She helped jump me light years ahead on understanding the science of it. So it was me and Angela Baca, Connor Boyack, um, these two other ladies from the Epilepsy Association and another gentleman, I can't remember his name. I apologize if you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, we sat in that meeting and, and the biggest concern that the, the, the mothers raised was you need to be careful about your messaging. They were very concerned that Angela was from California and had some questionable things on her Facebook. You know page. how those California Hollywood types are. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, she, she's a photographer, so she had some drag queen. P- photos up there from her life oh, in California, no. like from years ago. It, yeah. This was my first, I, I'm I'm sharing this story not to really belittle anybody or throw them on their bus, but it was a lesson. And, and this is why I'm sharing it. It was a lesson for me that the women who had been through this were telling me, you have to be careful about your messaging in Utah. Everybody is going to look under the mattress, under the skirt. They're going to check you out. You need to be careful. And that was what I was getting at from them when they were saying, you know, Angela's got some questionable things on her Facebook page. I only had Farmville stuff, so I was fine. (laughs) (laughs) I was still a newbie playing on this. (laughs) So it it was, that was enlightening. Um, When I left that meeting, I I realized 
I do have a battle on my hands. I have to message to conservative um, supermajority GOP state conservative Mormons that medical cannabis could actually help them. And that was going to be a serious challenge, a serious challenge. Did you, had you can, at the time considered just moving out of the state? Like what made you no. decide that you wanted to stay here and fight that fight here versus going somewhere where, you know, maybe, maybe it was a little easier to get done or had already been done? The, the option to flee was not a choice. My family is here. My resources are here. My husband's job is here. I should not be a medical refugee because my neighbor's not comfortable mm -hmm. with propaganda that they've been taught. I felt like it was my job to educate. It, it, it just felt like when you're, when your story is presented the way mine was, I have a brain tumor. My father's a narcotics officer. My heavens, he even guarded Nixon during the seventies when he was down there, the, the father of the drug war. When your story <laughs> presents itself the way mine did, I felt obligated to do something. You know, I came, I come from a place of privilege. I am a white woman, middle class, and father who's a narcotics officer. What do you do with that information when cannabis changes your life and does something that, that is, you weren't told it would do? Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely felt obligated to, to be more than just, um, somebody running to another state to just buy it in a dispensary. It felt like, no, I need to help raise awareness. There's other people like yeah. me. And that's what I did. I felt like I needed to find others like me. Well, and that's one of the things that I found so compelling about your, your talk for Atheists of Utah is, I mean, sure, there's the personal aspect of this where you can reap some benefit by having this uh, legalized here in the state and will no longer be, you know, committing illegal acts anytime you want to seek treatment. But more than that, it was that you realized, no, it can help me, but it can help other people. If I wanted to help only myself, well, I could go somewhere else and just do it. It wouldn't right. matter. But you were more concerned with also making sure that other people had access to this to help them. And I, I thought that was awesome. Thank you. It's, um, I missed out on time. 16 years is a long time. Mm -hmm. Half of my 20s all of my 30s gone and i know that there are others that suffer from disease states conditions illness that that robs them of life and if we can offer just a little bit of compassion to alleviate some suffering i feel like that's the very reason for our existence you don't have to believe in any kind of higher power just be decent and try to help one another mm. that's that's all i'm mm -hmm. here about and that's what i wanted to continue to do um, so literally got better and started helping others to try to get relief. It, well, as, as you did for those 16 years, taking different kinds of opioids and narcotics that they'd been prescribing for mm -hmm. a very long time. And we know damn well, doesn't really do shit. No. And it, there has to be that time where it's like, Hey, we keep doing something that isn't working. What can we do that will work? And Hopefully, you know, it's getting better with that, but you still have like, like before we talked about or before we got on the air, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of, you know, the, the politics behind it being like, well, mm -hmm. marijuana isn't making me money, but opium is. Yeah. It's there, there's a lot of politicking behind the drug war. And that was something that I was learning in my discovery in, in doing this is diving when I started pulling this together and pulling patients in and moving further down the political um, 
road, I started to realize there was a need in our state. There was a need within the cannabis community for patients to come together and sort of educate each other and learn and break the propaganda. And that's what happened. I, you know, I told you about the Facebook group. We had gone through a session and watched what happened on the Hill. I realized that we had to actually form something. And so I formed a nonprofit and we started moving forward on educating people as they came in. And we, we focused our, our interest and our information on four areas. It was on history, learning the history of prohibition and the history of cannabis as humans used it for thousands and thousands of years. So teaching people that was really important, the political stuff about how prohibition happened. Then the science behind cannabis. We started doing research on cannabis in the 40s, shortly after prohibition started in 1937 by 45 um, Giardia or yeah, Giardia, I'm saying that wrong. LaGuardia. Okay. Um, the, sorry, <laughs> like, wrong thing. Giardia. Wrong thing. I'm like, wrong, wrong you thing. can get that at Lake Powell if you're <laughs> yeah. not very careful. LaGuardia. <laughs> no, the mayor of LaGuardia of New York sent up a commission to do research on cannabis when it became prohibitive. All the lies that were being told about it, he didn't believe it. And so he commissioned these 31 um, scientists and researchers and, and social workers and everything together to debunk that. And they did in 45. But Anslinger was very upset that this report came out and contradicted what he said, who was a, you know, DEA, mm-hmm. FBI, excuse me, politician. He was trying to prohibit this. They squashed that report and we sort of were quiet for years and years and cool. years until the 60s. When Dr. Raphael Moshulam started doing research on cannabis oil, THC, and epilepsy. So teaching people that we have a long, rich history about cannabis and that it didn't just happen in the 70s was really important because you start debunking things for people. It breaks. They're very confused (laughs) because I was too. I'm like, Daddy, wait a minute. This is what was going on. Did you know this? And he didn't know stuff either. Like so. the whole reefer madness craze basically yeah. turning in. And from some of the things I've seen on during prohibition with, with marijuana and some other stuff, it was fairly racist as well. Very much so. Very much so. Very racist. That's where the, the term and the word marijuana with an H came from. It was meant to to demonize, sensationalize, make it sound more ethnic so they could use, you know, banning marijuana as as the marketing and not banning cannabis because most people knew it as cannabis cannabis was on the label in your cough syrup in your medicine Mm -hmm. cabinet it'd been part of the pharmacopoeia since the 1800s that's how the community and that's how everybody understood this botanical is as the word cannabis so for their marketing they changed it to marijuana started demonizing it, saying, you know, colored men are going to come rape white yep. women and everything else. William Turns them into Hurst, crazed beasts. Exactly. Yeah. William, uh, um, William Hurst runs, you know, the paper mogul. He was putting all kinds of yellow journalism out there, sensationalizing, you know, pe- the debauchery of cannabis and everything else. So it really, you know, there was a deep, rich political drive to push cannabis underground. There was a lot of people who didn't want it to be successful. So teaching people the history, teaching people the science, and then teaching people, um, let's see, we, we, do patient, we do patient perspective, we do history, we do science, and um, there's one more and I'm forgetting it. Darn it. Advocacy? <laughs> no, it's, we do history, science, patient perspective. And um, policy, there you are, okay. policy, teaching people the way policy works, telling them, teaching them the process of how legislation gets passed, how it became prohibitive, how they can engage in the political process and the policy making, 
really learning those four areas empowers a patient to become politically involved in their own advocacy. Mm -hmm. And so we started truce and that was our four pillars now that I can remember them. <laughs> Gosh, darn it. History, science, policy. I blame policy. the weed, really. It is. We can do that. History, history, science, policy, and patient perspective. Those are the four pillars that within truce we try to focus our, our advocacy work on. So any event we do, any public speaking, it comes from those, those four pillars. Um, and that's been an amazing change because now patient advocates are teaching each other. They're finding articles. They're having communications with researchers and doctors and getting involved. So we really kind of grew a movement. Um, by 2015, we got a little bit bigger, a few more patients. Um, at this point in time, I sat down with Angela and she had a very honest talk with me about, you got to tell your story. You, you're just telling it with a few people, but let me write your story. And that was, that was scary because it's one thing for me to be in a room with you guys, not on the phone, on the mic, but <laughs> in a room talking to friends about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very different than putting an article on alternate that is talking about using cannabis illegally in Utah. And I still have minor children at home. So I was, I knew that the conversation had to be pushed a little bit further. We needed to challenge the stereotype of what a cannabis user looks like. Um, for your listeners, I do not have dreadlocks. I do not wear Rastafarian clothing. I do not have pot leaves on. And you're not, not lazy. Tie dye. I'm not lazy. I'm. I don't. I don't fall into the traditional. This is what a, a cannabis user looks like. Well, I'll say that's ninety percent of the people who use cannabis. Mm -hmm. uh, like I've told people before, I'm like, I guarantee you, you go to the grocery store, you're passing by. Half Many. the people there are probably using cannabis. And guess what? They're not scary. They're mm -hmm. not going to rob you. They hold jobs. They're not going to hurt yeah. you. They're successful. And, and, and so that's what I, I did. I decided to share my story and give people a peek into, you know, what a, a Utah mom was trying to advocate for. You know, I've been suffering a long time and I wanted a little compassion for me to use a botanical that doesn't kill anybody. I think that was the most important thing. This, yeah. this plant hasn't killed anybody. And so um, my story came out and I was expecting a lot of backlash. I was worried and paranoid all the time driving into Salt Lake. Started sharing my story with, um, at the time, it still is, the district attorney, Sim Gill. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't want patients to get arrested for this. He's the district attorney and I'm, I'm concerned about it. And especially because I travel to Salt Lake a lot. <laughs> I don't want to be arrested. For I don't want to be arrested. <laughs> I don't want to be arrested, Sim. And, and he absolutely was so compassionate about this issue. Very much so. He started to meet some of the patients that I brought in and advocated with. I asked him to join us for press conferences and it was, it was so, nice to have somebody an elected official acknowledge that compassion needs to be taking place and we shouldn't be locking people in cages for this plant yeah the <clears throat> excuse me the the few encounters or interactions that i've had with with sim i was impressed by uh just how kind he is how truly how how kind and generous he is and that he actually wants to help people and is there you know, the the whole reason he's doing what he's doing, the impression I've always gotten from him through, like I said, the limited interactions that I've had with him are 
that he gives a shit about people. He yeah. wants to help improve people's lives. Yeah. Politics is is tricky. Yeah. <laughs> it's tricky because, you know, a lot of people will want to poo-poo on what he's doing in his efforts for whatever angle and whatever direction because he's got a lot of things going on. But on this, he has tried to stay by my side the entire way. From the moment I showed up, um, he's been on panels with me. I've talked about using it illegally in Utah. He's sitting right <laughs> next to me. Um, but didn't he's, slap cuffs on me or <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. I mean, he's been a, a, a true champ. And, you know, it, he's not the only one. There's a lot of those elected officials that are out there. They just weren't public about it. And so I, I praise him because it does take a lot of guts to stand next to a patient advocate and say, yeah, let's not. Let's not put these guys in jail. Let's not do this. So I, I'm giving him a round of applause for that. Um, so we, we continue, you know, on into 2015. I meet Senator Matson, Senator Mark Matson at the time. He is a Republican from Eagle Mountain. And not only that, he is the grandson of an LDS prophet. Oh. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in my, in my, in my journey, I'm doing hand gestures for your audience. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little Vanna White. Um, in my journey in in the politics in Utah, I went first to ACLU. Makes sense to me. Yeah. We are a supermajority red state, so mm-hmm. probably not the best place to start. <laughs> but I didn't know anything about politics. So to me, that made sense. It was a logical first step. Um, so I went to ACLU, met with a gal named Anna, and she said, beautiful blonde dreadlocks. (laughs) I sat down with her and I said, this is who I am. This is my story. This is what I'm doing. I've actually talked to Anna before. She's She's awesome. She she actually came and spoke (laughs) for Atheists of Utah one time. She's really, really cool. She's a rock star. Yeah. I mean, we have so many of them in in Utah. We really, really do who are out there kicking butt, uh, doing so many wonderful things. She is one of those people. She's not with ACLU now, but she's doing, still rocking it. Anyway, I met with her. She was so supportive, very encouraging, and with a smile said, it's not going to happen here in Utah. (laughs) You're going to need, you're going to need a Republican to, to run this. And until that happens, I just don't see that going. They just did something last session. They don't have an appetite to do this again. A month later, I give her a call, ringy dingy, <laughs> <laughs> and said, um, guess who I just sat down with? <laughs> Senator Mark Madsen. She said, you're kidding. He's a Republican and the grandson. And I said, I know, of a prophet. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I told him my story. And that's a funny little, little stint. So I brought Angela with me from earlier in the story, brought mm. Angela with me. We went in to meet with Senator Madsen. He had 15 minutes before he was going into a next meeting. Very common for senators. Oh, yeah. You can come in and talk, but I really have to go. I, I've yeah, got like, a very limited amount walking, of time available. Yeah. We're walking down the hall or where we, I tell him my story and he's just mouth open, just jaw dropped. And Angela then tells her story. She's a Crohn's patient, lived in California, started using cannabis, put her Crohn's into you know remission. Um, she was able to come off of medication, blah, blah, blah. But she travels back and forth from California to Utah. Her husband or her fiance was going to school. So she two weeks there. So we were trying to get 
uh, compassion to the fact that patients travel and these imaginary lines from state to state doesn't serve us. My mm-hmm. brain tumor doesn't go away just because I'm in mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Idaho yeah. or, or something. It's it's always there. And so, you know, our stories where we need more compassion, we need safer access, we need brick and mortar in our state. We can't transport across state lines. So he says, you know what, girls? He didn't call us girls. You know what, ladies? <laughs> I was going to say. Sorry, Mark. Well. He did not say that. <laughs> he said, ladies, why don't you, will you, do you guys have time to follow me to the next meeting that I'm going into? And we're like, sure. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, well, all right. I thought well, maybe we were just being quiet and just like, we'll wait and then we'll talk to him some more. The next meeting we go into is the Sutherland Institute, the Eagle Forum, and the UMA. Oh. <sighs> Oh. Fire, <laughs> frying pan, meat, fire. Well, <laughs> like, I, yeah, well, I haven't, I haven't interacted with or had any. I haven't had any interaction with UMA, but the but Sutherland and uh, Eagle, Eagle Forum are, yeah, they're horrible. Not my favorite groups here. No, they're they're tough groups for sure, especially on this issue. But I being a novice still, didn't know who these entities were. And ah. so I walked in bold as brass. Hi, Gail. Hi, Gail. Well, it was Gail had sent somebody else. You look like oh. a nice person. <laughs> Gail had sent somebody else that day. Her name's Renee Green. She was fabulous, by the way. Um, but the Sutherland Institute, the UMA. And so uh, not knowing who they were, he gave the quick introductions that, that meant nothing to me, except for the UMA. I kind of lingered on that because there was a physician there. Luckily, we brought in some research with us to to help teach and educate because that's what we were using for Senator Madsen. So um, we tell our stories. Uh, Sutherland kind of scowls. <laughs> UMA definitely. Well, the doctor, Bill Hamilton, asked a lot of questions. He was the president at the time. He is no longer the president now. But he asked a lot of questions of me and Angela, and we gave him the booklet that we brought. We just, we could order a new one. <laughs> you know, I'm like, here, take this, you know, and research it. He seemed curious. Um, he got dirty looks from Michelle, who is the CEO, Michelle McOmbar, who um, was not very pleased with us, and she just kind of grumpily said to Mark, you know how we feel about smoking. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> Sutherland say, said the same thing. You know how we feel about smoking. We don't want anything to do with sp- smoking. But it was obvious these people were not supporters. And so Angela and I were taken back a little bit, but they excused themselves, except for Renee Green, Eagle Forum. Mm. She said, do you mind if I stick around? I, I just have some more questions. And so the others left and, and she stuck around. She wanted to help. Because we were talking about running this bill for the 2015 session. And I didn't know anything about her. I think Mark was a little, he knows Eagle Forum. He knows yeah. Eagle very well. He was on the Hill for 12 years. So I th- at that point, I think he was a little taken back that Renee wanted to stay. But she's also a liberty-minded individual. Very, very much a liberty-minded individual. So she was intrigued with the thought of growing your own medicine. And that I was able to not only get rid of my pharmaceuticals, but like someone who has Crohn's disease was able to use cannabis to put their Crohn's into remission was just amazing to her. So it fed into her ideologies that, you know, plants are medicine, that, you know, these herbs are meant for us to be used. So she stuck around and we started game planning about what we were going to do for the 2015 session. Um, I'd never run legislation before. I, you know, I had just a few patient advocates who were, 
you know, looking at me as like, what are we doing? Like, well, I, I taught them how to do an elevator pitch, get their stories done in like two minutes to share with legislators. And we blazed into the 2015 session. We were literally were building the plane as we were flying it. <laughs> it was just an unbelievable ride. Hello, my name is Tony from the Conversations with God podcast. And as the name suggests, on that podcast, I talk to the creator of the universe, God. We discuss philosophy, cooking, death and diseases, amongst other important subjects. And you're listening to the Godless Revolution podcast, which is much better than the Conversations with God podcast. So you're a cool priest, are you? A cool priest? Yeah. No, I'm a big reader with no friends. Are you a cool person? Oh, I'm a pretty normal person. A normal person? Yeah, a normal person. What makes you a normal person? Well, I don't believe in God. I love it when he does that. You and the Godless Revolution will be reassimilated in three, two, one. After that meeting, and I think a week or so later, uh, that's when I told Anna that I met with Senator Mads and she was shocked. She's like, you know, we should find allies on the Hill. She suggested us going to Connor Boyack. I was very nervous <laughs> about that. I'd been warned not to play with Connor. And, and so people were like, you know, be careful. And it, it's like that. It's just like that on the Hill. You know, there's all these little clicky groups. It's very much like high school. So yeah. it was not unusual for me to hear that. So I ignored, <laughs> I <Yeah>. ignored them. <laughs> and so I did play with, with Connor and we did sort of form an allied ship. Um, he was more of a policy wonk. I was definitely more had the patient perspective, the science and the cannabis knowledge, and at least access to people across the, the states who, who were connected to this issue. So we formed an allied ship, the legislator, Senator Madsen, Connor Boyack, the policy wonk, and Christine, the, the patient advocate. And we blazed in the 2015, tried to raise awareness, did an interview with Gerke. There was a lady who came up from Utah County. This story is amazing. Um, she is an LDS woman, was 14 weeks pregnant, was diagnosed with a blastoma. She had cancer. Um, at the time, I think it was a stage two. And so she had the choice of doing chemotherapy. And that's a brain cancer, right? It, it is. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> she could do, she could do, uh, chemotherapy, but then she's risking the baby, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, or not and maybe use alternative methods. And she discovered cannabis and there's a lady in Arizona. Um, excuse me, in Nevada, who does herbal remedies and works with medical cannabis and put her cancer in remission, also LDS. Her name is also Angela. <laughs> she uh, she um, was sort of a caregiver for this lady. And I don't want to give her name out because she's kind of pulled away from from the the movement. And so out of respect, I'll just protect her identity. But she used cannabis during that time and put her cancer into remission, um, delivered a healthy baby boy moved back to Utah, and at this time still did not use any other treatment other than cannabis. With a two-week-old baby, she showed up to Capitol Hill in 2015 with me. She saw my interview on TV and was like, I've got to be up there. i got to tell people what happened to me. It was the same thing. This is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You share your story and you don't know who else is out there who may either be benefiting or, or being able to add to. So it, it was scary to share my story, but it that's what I was hoping for is that that chain reaction would happen. 
So she drove up from Provo and started advocating on the hill with me. So me and this other mom, these two blonde head women running around the hill saying, we need cannabis. <laughs> like, I, I love the children and all, but as adults, we need compassion and we need access. And so it was a different little flip of the switch um, from messaging the year before was mm. let's do it for the children. Yeah. It was ep- epilepsy. It was for all epilepsy patients, but the focus was do it for the kids. Mm. And as much as I love that, I am... We're adults much longer than we are children. And I would like some compassion for adults. And that was my message. Like I, I am, I'm the head of my family. And if I'm not up and functioning, the whole family suffers. And, and we have a lot of adults, moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas who are suffering. And so her adding her voice to that storyline really helped open up people's hearts and minds. Um, well, and in Utah where, you know, the, the, primary focus of the predominant faith tradition here is a focus on families big time. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's everything yeah. centers around families are forever. You're going to be with your family, you know, yeah. for eternity. You need to take care of your family. Families are the most important thing, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that that would be a very compelling uh, issue or point to bring up with, with people here locally. When you're talking about moms being sick. It kind of pulls at the heartstrings. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got me. I have a benign brain tumor, so I, I want to make sure people are aware of that. Mm-hmm. And But Tennille had, you know, a malignant tumor. And um, cancer comes, you know, it comes for all of us. I mean, most of us. I mean, some of us are lucky and we don't have those genetics in our in our line. Anyway, the um, 2015 session was groundbreaking because it really challenged the notion that what a cannabis user looks like. Um, so we were, we were really prominently showing all these, um, LDS active members who were wanting to use cannabis. And I think that started to really change the, the concept in people's mind of what compassionate care looks like. And so we, we kept pulling in more patients. Um, 2015 came and went. We didn't really get far. Um, we did get a bill read on the Senate floor. We got two readings and then it died. And um, we still needed work, to be honest. We were novice at what we were trying to accomplish there. So I'm not too brokenhearted on that first year that we rebuilt. We got our issues sent to committee hearing to, to be studied during the interim. For your listeners, interim happens after the session. The session runs 45 days in January to March. And then interim happens May, June, July, August, all the way to November. And it's uh, one week, of one week, one Wednesday of the month, all the legislators come together and they discuss bills and issues that are coming up for the following year. So it gives them time to study the issue a little more. So Mark decided, Senator Madison decided, we need to get this issue kicked over so it can be studied. We can get the committees to to understand this issue a little better. So we did that in 2015. And that's when Truce really um, became a very strong presence on social media. We we became a little more pulled together, excuse me, going into the 2016 uh, legislative year. We were now formed as a name. We had a name, we're truce. Um, started bringing patients up there, advocating. We held a press conference, the Patients Not Criminals press conference. Sim spoke, um, a few patients spoke. We had an officer speak, a woman with EDS, you know, which is a, a condition, spoke. She almost had her children taken away from her. So we're trying to really 
raise awareness of all the different lifestyles that that are involved in this. We had all kinds of patients, epilepsy, brain tumor, Parkinson's, uh, and just you name the condition. And cancer, you know, cancer. Uh, friend friend of the show mm-hmm. and, and somebody who had appeared on, on our show a couple times, Forrest Shaw, oh. I believe, was involved with, with truce and, and advocating for patients. And sadly, he's not around anymore. But yeah, he was he was a great guy. Dude. Sorry, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna make you cry the whole episode. <laughs> you are. Um, during my time on Facebook, I I was friends with with Forrest. I had met him at that point. Um, but this was my early years of Facebooking, and I remember seeing his post go up when he got diagnosed. And I um immediately re- reached out to him and sent him a message and shared my story. And I said, "Have you thought about doing this?" And drag that poor man into my world (laughs) bless his heart in 2015 he spoke during committee hearing Mm -hmm. and made some legislators squirm when he talked about prostate cancer and 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 the suffering that he'd been going through the boys need to have tissues or stop making people cry but he was um instrumental in those early years and raising awareness and he was so sick by then too Mm -hmm. he was already i mean he was already at metastasized stage four at that point he his story is hard because it was four years of really long suffering it was really hard to watch and i've lost quite a few patients during this um i'm five six seven something like that at this point in the uh, past five years that i've been on the hill doing this and that's his story was amazing, and I'm really appreciative of him lending his voice to it, and all of those that have lent his voice to it. But Forrest was a gem. Absolutely. Yeah, he was. He was a really, really good guy. So sweet. Yeah. So so sweet. Um, but we we have a lot of amazing advocates that that come to this movement, and and they're patients. They're so sick, and they're so in such desperate need. But they're so eager to lend their voices and help. It really, I, I thought my, I was unique in that compassion. There's a lot of us in Utah that have that compassion that we're willing to lend a hand to push a movement and a cause a little further. Um, at the end of 2015, we didn't pass anything. We, we were gearing up for the 2016 session. We were definitely more organized. We were definitely on board. We met with more departments. We met with more of the alphabet government agencies you know we've we were a little more pulled together but the legislators still did not want to deal with this and not just the legislators the higher powers in this state yeah, you the morality have, police in this state say, you didn't have the three-lettered lds on your side yet. i did not we did not the, the 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 church of jesus christ of latter-day saints did come out against our efforts in 2015 Oh, you um, can call them Mormons now again, apparently. Yeah. Oh, we can? Yeah, they changed yeah. it back. Thank God. Yeah. They, figured, they found out it was costing way too much money to print to the whole Latter-day Saints on all their stuff. stuff. <laughs> like, they had to, like, make pamphlets wider to fit the words on it, so they're like, we're Mormon. It's just you think, embrace uh, it. God would be able to see ahead of time. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that whole problem. marketing thing for 10 years, that mm-hmm. was that was strange. I'm a Mormon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's okay, guys. Embrace your labels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, the church, um, are we allowed to call them the church? Sure. We're <laughs> <laughs> from Utah. You know what that means. Yeah. It's funny traveling out of state when you're used to being here so long and you just- You say the church you, and everybody's and like, like, what, what church, church are you talking, are you talking about? about? Yeah. <laughs> like- Oh, there's more churches. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> like, I'm in D.C. and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Never mind. Um, 
But the 2016 um, year on the Hill, I think, was one of the most prominent years. I think we had the most people showing up and turning out. Um, I was up there every day during the session. Every day was on the Hill um, taking patients to meet their legislators because patients, you know, they can't always make it. People work. They do the best they can. And the session runs in the middle of the day. So um, we were bringing patients up there. They were meeting with legislators. By the midway through the session, legislators were done. They were like, no more, Christine. Like, no more. Like, We've they heard all out. we need to hear. But you got the point yet, though. Yes, you, you're you starting to make, that. you're starting to break my, my dam of not caring about people. And so you just need to stop. Yeah, it was... They didn't want to be drilled with this issue in the middle of the session. Mm-hmm. They certainly didn't. And, you know, it's emotional. It's a very emotional topic. And I'm bringing up patients who are broken. They are broken. Mm-hmm. Their spirits are broken. Their bodies are broken. They're just emotionally they're broken. You know, they have they keep going to, to doctors trying to find answers and being told there are none. So it, it was emotionally taxing. It was for everybody involved the advocates to legislators i mean it was it was intense um but we got it out of the senate it was kind of amazing we we got it through the senate um wayne niederhauser who was the senate president at the time let us all cheer we were up in the gallery <laughs> which is not a common practice you, you usually are booted out oh but, yeah you're supposed to be very quiet yeah. very yeah. and irreverent of all the politicking that's going on <laughs> in the government as they screw you over. Um, <laughs> but we were allowed to cheer and it was the loudest uproar. Just all of us up in the gallery just cheering because it would, it was so hard to get to that point. We then saw the bill get sent to HHS committee hearing committee where it then was killed. And that was sort of the deal that we already knew. We know now all the politicking behind the scenes, and that was the agreement. It would pass out of the Senate. They would kill it in the House, and it wouldn't go anywhere. And they would, again, drag out this this game with us. Um, Senator Madsen left the Hill. Senator Urquhart left the Hill. Really, most of the libertarian-leaning Republicans that, that even cared about this issue just sort of retired in 2016. So we were left with those opponents, um, Representative Brad Daw from Utah County and Senator Evan Vickers, a pharmacist from down in St. George. So these two individuals have been writing opposition legislation to what Madsen had been running from the moment we showed up on the Hill in 2015. So those are the opponents. Um, Representative Brad Daw sits on a anti-drug board something similar to like a dare program but it's a mm. it's an anti-drug he sat on that board yeah. forever and ever and ever so those he, work great yeah <laughs> <laughs> so these two individuals are the ones that that continue to write legislation so in 2017 they try to pass some bills um, working on a right to try and we dubbed it it's a right to try bill so if you have if you're on hospice, they say that you can use cannabis. That was what the bill was. We dubbed it right to try if you promise to die <laughs> because yeah. you're only allowed on it for six months. Yeah. Hospice is six months. And after six months of using cannabis and your health improves, too bad, so sad, you're off. So it was a really bad piece of policy. It was just placating. It wasn't mm-hmm. actually doing anything substantive for patients. We just kept being chided. You need to be grateful. You need, we, we do things in steps in Utah. You know, we need to do more research. All the excuses under the sun just kept coming at us. Well, and that's, that just seems like a really fucking weird 
stance to have anyway. Like, okay, well, now that you're going to die, we'll let you have yeah. this thing that right. can help you out. Like, we understand that it could help you before then, but really we want to wait until you're going to fucking die and then exactly. we'll and then help, help you out for a little bit. And, you know, well, lucky you if you happen to live longer than those six months, but also fuck you because you can't have it longer than that. Yeah. It was what a, really, a weird way. It like, was. It's just fucking stupid. Yeah. And cruel. Yeah. Truly, it was just cruel. Yeah. And at the time, our friend Forrest was still alive. Yeah. And, and he talked about this. that quite he a bit. Like, did. Who's going to determine? Like, you don't know exactly yeah. when I'm going to exactly. die. Yeah. You can give me a guess, mm -hmm. but what if it's extended for that? What if it's shorter? What if, what if I'm given this, you know, six months to live, but I've really only got two weeks mm -hmm. and I could have been using this for the last five months and instead you've limited me to the last two weeks of my life? Like, that's just a stupid fucking way to go about writing policy for somebody. It truly is. Um, Forrest, in fact, called me. He's like, great, fantastic. I'm glad they passed this bill. Now, how do I get my weed? <laughs> like, like, oh, honey, that was just message bill. That wasn't real. That wasn't that wasn't anything. So um, this these antics go on and I am still in contact with my ally um, at, at the time, um, Connor. And I'm like, this is just bullshit. But this is this is just a joke. We're just being played for fools. We have to move forward on the the initiative. And we teased we teased the public in 2016. We teased the legislators that we were going to run an initiative because, um, I mean, it was a tease, but it was serious. Like if we couldn't get substance, get something substantive passed, we, we had to take it to the people. This was just getting beyond ridiculous. And so in 2017, Connor and I had that conversation again, like ball initiative needs to happen. It just needs to happen. And so we started moving and making plans on running a ball initiative. So um, in 2017, we started talking um, with other people. MPP, the Marijuana Policy Project, was brought in by Connor. And um, we started talking to them about writing uh, legislation here using Madsen's bill that passed out of the Senate as a framework because it's already gone through ledge research. It's already gone through the vetting. Half the body's already voted for it or, you know, one house has already voted for it. There's already been a ton of work done on it. Right. Yeah. So we used that as the framework, um, tweaked some things, added some things um, because it was far more conservative than what we were going to move towards on. on. And I say conservative and I mean that's relative to Utah <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because our bill is extremely crappy compared to any other piece of legislation nationwide. So, yeah, it was a conservative bill for Utah. Um, it, it needed to be broadened. And that's what we did with the ballot initiative. Not too much crazy. It wasn't really that broad. I mean, well, we've seen other things in, in other states that were far more. Yeah, I was going to say, but the but the conservatives in this state <sighs> thought your bill was way too liberal. Oh yeah, they they for sure thought you know this is a recreational bill. That, that's what they started saying. Yeah. It was a recreational bill, even though you had to go to a you had to have a condition, you had to go to a physician, you had to have a letter. I mean, we had all the same hoops that every other state had. They were just convinced it was con you know a recreational bill. Yeah, but if you live more than two hours away from a place, you could grow your own with Prop Two. That was yeah, if you <sighs> well, live. A hundred miles away from a dispensary, you could grow your own. Well, and how – I've never understood this whole, well, we'll let you have it as long as it's not used recreationally. Like yeah. this coming from the people who ostensibly are all about freedom and free will and allowing people to do what they want, but then anytime they have the chance to actually let you do it, it's no, sorry. We're yeah. going to tell you 
that we want you, you know, that we believe you have free will, that we believe you should be able to make your own choices, that the government shouldn't step in and do all of these things to regulate. You know, we're, we're against regulation, but really we're not. <laughs> we're yeah. just going to say that on one hand and act in a way that's completely opposed to that. Yeah. It's the whole process has been extremely challenging. I mean, that the, the, just educating Educating the legislators, but also the community, you know, it's just, it, it's getting them okay with this idea too. You mm -hmm. know, it was, it's, they're, they're a little quicker, a little more progressive, I think, than legislators. I think legislators are a little bit more conservative than the general public. Mm -hmm. And that's why I felt like it, we would be successful if we took it to the people and, mm -hmm. and got a vote. But a successful ballot initiative hadn't been passed in Utah for 20 years. Oh, wow. I a didn't realize it had been that long. A statewide ballot initiative hadn't been passed since they did asset forfeiture. And I would question if that was successful or not because they went in and gutted that. That legislative body went in and, and undid that, too. So taking on initiative was going to be a huge challenge for Connor and I and the allies that we brought in to, to help us with that. But we thought it was doable. And it was, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2017, we um, started working on language. By April or May, we had finalized on where we were going to be. We submitted it. Oh, my gosh. In June, we submitted. By August, we <laughs> by August we were able to collect signatures. And the first place we started collecting signatures was at the Willie Nelson concert. <laughs> it was the first place. Seems like the it's most logical place post. to start. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So that's. I mean, unless Cheech and Chong are in town for right. the show. Oh, uh, Willie's got to have it first. <laughs> Respect the braids. <laughs> so we did our, our first night collecting signatures for the ballot initiative was at the Willie Nelson concert. I don't know if you guys remembered, like it blacked out or something halfway through or partway through. Anyway, <laughs> but that was the that's when we started collecting signatures. And um, that we, there's a separate campaign that ran the the ballot initiative. Uh, pick is what you need. A political issue committee. So we it wasn't Truce that ran it. It wasn't Libertas that ran it. It was the separate entity, Utah Patients Coalition. Mm -hmm. So we, Connor and I, formed this Utah Patients Coalition. There was people that were hired to help run the campaign. And I was talking to one of the gentlemen, Alex, who was the campaign manager. And um, he says, we, we put this out there. And within the first 24 hours, you almost got 2,000 emails from volunteers, people wanting to volunteer across the state. Oh, wow. And we thought for sure we'd have those volunteers, maybe a couple hundred. But I think he was just overwhelmed by how many people reached out. It was just amazing. We did decide early on that we weren't going to rely solely on volunteers. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. We had to gather 113 thousand signatures in 26 of the 29 Senate districts. So how does that, how do they arrive at that number? What, is there some magic formula to get there? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a motion of me pulling something out of my ass. Um, you guys need video. Yeah. I'm very animated. You thought about it. <laughs> um, they, it's 10% of the, 10% uh, of the vote from the presidential year, the, uh, the voting year. So 10% from every Senate district of people who voted. Did that make sense? Yeah, and I the, think so. The, so you're saying the, 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 the prior presidential election, election the number of, of people who voted in that, you need 10% of that total number. And does it have and to be 10% in each district or 10% yes. total? 10% in each district. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yeah. It had its its own little requirements. Yep. 
So each each district had its its requirement, and then you know the twenty six of the twenty nine. So that was a big lift. We collected two hundred thousand raw signatures. Oh wow! Most of those got some of those got tossed. So our final number was like one hundred and fifty thousand signatures that were collected. We wanted to make sure we had that coverage. Mm-hmm. Because there is a time frame, the rescinding that the opposition could go out, target whatever counties we were low on or whatever Senate districts we were low on and just pull, you know, 150, you know, however many to knock each one off. So it's it's a real joke of a game. The political process for initiatives here is just absolutely convoluted, really, truly. But we were able to do it. We got it passed. And not only that, we survived the rescinding period. And last year in June, we qualified. We qualified. We made it to the ballot. So all we had to do was withstand the opposition's bullshit. <laughs> for the <laughs> Their next propaganda few months for the next until November. While, yeah. And as you guys are aware, if you've lived mm-hmm. here in Utah, you know what a grueling drama-filled race that was. We did have... Um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. <laughs> I gave it all. I gave the yeah, whole I mean, thing. <laughs> we got more words for them, but, but I mean. <laughs> we did have them come out in opposition to our efforts. Um, they wanted the ballot initiative to stop. They wanted it to end. And there was nothing they could do at this point. We had a meeting with them and we were concerned about the bill passing and some tweaks that we wanted to see have happened to improve the legislation because it wasn't the best piece of policy. Um, Mm -hmm. The patient's advocacy group was not thrilled with this policy at all, but we listened to our ally and Connor had said, this is what's going to get us passed and we can work on improving things after the fact. And so when we went to the LDS church, we, we were concerned about, you know, truce advocates for all. It doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. It doesn't matter what what faith you follow. Cancer doesn't care, nor do we. Mm -hmm. We advocate for all. So having the church's um, input, buy-in, you know, conversation with them was out of respect. It was out of respect for the patients that we we fight for. Um, The church didn't see it quite like that. Um, I think for them, they, they had a different perspective. I think that there was a fear of losing control over the multitude, especially because so many were in support. At that time, last Mm -hmm. year, in June, we were pulling at 78% in support of medical cannabis in our state. Uh, In Utah. In Utah. Conservative, deep red Utah. That was after the rescinding period, too. That means all the antics that was going on in the public, all the opposition and their ridiculous lies and trying to submit signatures after hours at the clerk's office, all the emails that the church sent out saying, you know, we're against Prop 2, all this stuff was coming out. And we were still pulling extremely high. So when we walked in to meet with um, Marty Stevens. He was just, you know, why are you here? You know, if it's going to pass, what, you know, what's the big deal? And when we explained that there were things that we were worried about and concerned about. Um, his his concerns were different than our concerns. <laughs> At any rate, he had cautioned us during that that meeting that war was coming. And um, we received after that meeting, we we our hopes were to continue talking and having a dialogue. We got an email. <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> the next morning stating um, outlining what their concerns were and what their desire was. 
They had spelled out that the five to ten million dollars was going to be used to fight us. They had spelled out their concerns for the children. They had spelled out that they wanted to come up with some kind of draft of mutual understanding or goals that they could bring to the legislators, to the to the council, to the Gary Herbert, to a, a bunch of people and call a special session to try to stop the ballot yeah. initiative, even though we told them that that's, I mean, it's still, it's on the ballot. Like you can't stop that. That's, it's already happening. That ship um, has sailed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not an answer I think he wanted to hear. Um, cause in August of last year, August 23rd, they held a press conference. They meaning the powers in the state. We had the government, um, the morality piece, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the, the money, um, Gail Miller, Scott Anderson, Science Bank. They were on a stage with the LDS patients um, and said that they were against Prop 2. They said they were for medical cannabis, but they were against Prop 2. And that, For what reason? Um, because it was a recreational bill and they were concerned yeah. about the children. So that um, t- started a, a long debate and fight going into that voting time. Um, was there something in that? About recreational for children? No, 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 okay. <laughs> no. There was so an unfounded concern. It was it was just fear mongering and and lack of control. They didn't write this piece of legislation, uh, yeah. and they couldn't tell a legislator to kill it. This was truly out of their hands and in the hands of the people. And it was for the first time that I think the church and the powers in this state felt the power of the voter. I really do. It was the most, to me, it's still the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Scaring the church? Yeah. (laughs) I think this really did scare the church a bit because members were saying, no, I'm choosing my health. Mm -hmm. I'm choosing my health. And um, And then when people rise up in large numbers, the people in power should be concerned. Well, they absolutely should. And, and, And voters need to understand. I know it's frustrating and everybody gets apathetic about politics. But there is strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. There is power in the vote. It's when you're at stay at home and you choose to give up that you lose that. You, yep. You lose that power and that strength. You get trumped. You get you get <laughs> trumped. That's that's true. <laughs> um, what we saw was seventy eight thousand new registered voters in that year. Guys, that's phenomenal. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That is phenomenal, and that's also power. That is amazing power. If I could just have taken a little bit more time to educate those because a lot of those voters only voted for cannabis on their their voting tickets. They didn't vote for any candidates or anything. And so my hope is that I can teach the community to be a little more mindful of the electoral process. We need to be a little more observant of the down tickets and of other issues because you just passed medical cannabis in Utah. Can you imagine what the power could could do in this state if we started paying attention to who's running for office, mm-hmm. it would be... And caring about politics yes. and getting involved and volunteering. And, it, yeah. it would be amazing. And I'm hoping that this still sparks that change in those people. That I know they're discouraged and frustrated. My God, I am. I mean, I, I'm living this every day. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Change does not happen overnight. It's, mm-hmm. it's incremental. And that's what we're doing. It's starting with those moms back in 2014 showing up on the Hill saying we want access to where we are now in 2019. We have a bill that is passed. It's not the best piece of legislation, um, but we do have a bill that's passed. And that's kind of amazing. 
Hey everybody, I'm Mary. And I'm Shelly. We have the Latter Day Lesbian Podcast. It's the podcast about an ex-Mormon gay girl just trying to figure out her life. Mm-hmm. And so we do that every week on a podcast, don't we? We do. You're supposed to jump in. Sorry. Just jump in any time. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. We are available on your favorite podcast app. Just uh, look for Latter Day Lesbian, where your favorite podcast can be heard. And you're listening to The Godless Revolution. Think I should become a Catholic? No, don't do that. I like that you believe in a meaningless existence. <laughs> and you're good for me. You make me question my faith. And? I've never felt closer to God. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> what was that? It wasn't a fox, was it? I don't know. Is it a fox? Shine something. Go! Bah! Oh, God, I bet it's a fox. Oh, God. No, I'm not being funny. Foxes have been after me for years. It's like they have a pact or something. I'm not kidding. I was on a toilet, a toilet of a train, and when the train stopped, a fucking fox tried to get through the window of a train. Its face was in the window. And once, when I was at a monastery, I woke up just feeling a bit weird, like there might be a fox about, and a fox was sitting underneath my window, looking at me like this, pointing at me like you. We're watching you. We're having you. <laughs> Lucky God got there first. Well, yeah. You could be a fox boy by now. Well, we all know what happened to them. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who has rated the show on iTunes and Stitcher and are following us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And to all our Patreon patrons, you make the show possible. So to take you back to election night. <laughs> Sorry. Let <laughs> me get you back. Uh, this is a long uh, story, guys. I'm glad you guys have a very long No, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> Makes it easier for us. Yeah. yeah, they're just sitting here quite. We should have popped popcorn. Is what they're thinking. They food. Good thing we did beer and pizza beforehand. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're leading into the election night. So we're about a month out. They hold a gold room ceremony of a compromise that's been um, drummed up. So my ally at the, at the time, Connor Boyack, decided to jump ship and behind my back and without my knowledge had started seeking a um, alternative to this piece of legislation passing. He started asking people to meet with him on a you know negotiating something on the bill and um i'm not quite sure who he talked to and how it got to where it is now but uh i had a meeting with him and he said i've i've been in talks with speaker hughes and some others about this um about a compromise and he presented the bill to me and it was a piece of shit <laughs> sorry no, <you're> <laughs> it fine. was it was unacceptable for patients, and I was furious and frustrated that my ally had decided to enter into talks with without me. And it was it was very frustrating and very devastating. I turned to my friend, Senator Urquhart, Steve Urquhart, very upset, crying, saying I just got out of a meeting and was told that there is a compromise, and I just read the bill, and I'm furious. He says, I... I don't understand. I thought you knew about this. They came to me about three weeks ago asking me if I would join in these talks. And I said, no, I didn't bother to talk to you at all. Didn't talk to me about it. And so, um, Connor had, had tried. Oh shit. I just remembered you're a woman in Utah. Never mind. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of a compliment. I was like, I was was flabbergasted. Then I thought, oh shit. No, you're, that's right. You're a woman in Utah. Fuck me. And you smoke weed. (laughs) Connor did try to um, get me invited to a meeting that was about to happen the following week with Speaker Hughes and the UMA and Brad Wilson and, you know, all the up, 
upper ups. You know, Marty Stevens, you know, the church was involved in those talks too. Mm-hmm. And um, I was frustrated. One, my ally just betrayed me. Like the the fucking knife is still in my back. Mm-hmm. And he says, but there's a meeting next week. You should come to it. So as I'm trying to pull the knife out of my own back, I turn to Steve. I'm like, hey, can you grab that? And also, do you want to come to this meeting with me? Because these are your friends. So you know them better than I do. I don't know. Will you come with me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I construct a text message to Greg Hughes and say, thanks for the invite to the meeting. I would like to bring my legislative council and board member, Steve Urquhart. You know, (laughs) you know him. (laughs) You know him. Well, I mean, Greg Hughes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the answer was, um, well, I think Connor and DJ have represented Truce well or have represented you well i'm like that that's libertus that is those are separate entities they don't represent me they don't bring my water to the table and with all due respect i will do that myself and i was politely um escorted out (laughs) (laughs) don't come thanks you know what we've got don't you worry your pretty little head miss we got this covered yeah he's like you know what we'll we'll come back to you when we announce it to the rest of the community so I literally was escorted out of the conversation, and that was done by my former ally, Connor Boyack. He decided to enter into negotiations without me. So this is where we stand now. We go to election night, and we sit with anticipation on this bill happening. During that 30 days before the election, there was a lot of mixed messaging going out mm-hmm. there. Connor was telling people to vote for Prop 2 and to support the negotiation, the compromise bill. It was a lot of double talk and bullshit going on. We had two separate watch parties. We had literally broken away from each other at that point. They were separate camps. Um, I chose to expose the nonsense. I, I, am, I do not like backdoor politicking in the church overstepped their bounds they Mm. absolutely overstepped their bounds and they got involved in a nasty way and i felt it needed to be exposed and it was it was just blatant for the entire state to see come election night we're with the patients group and we win we get 53 percent of the vote yay pass prop two Mm -hmm. it was fantastic it was great i get a phone call from um one of the the reporters and uh rod arquette and he says, so what are you going to do now? <laughs> he said, <laughs> we need to end federal prohibition. Mm-hmm. That was my response. This isn't enough. Getting Winning Utah is not enough. There are, like I said, I will have a brain tumor. It doesn't matter where I travel to. It will always be there. I need to be able to carry my vape pen or my medicine with me at all times. So until, well, yeah, I mean, you can take you can take your other medications with you, right? Yeah, exactly. anything that you get a prescription for, you your can cocaine, take that anywhere else in the country that you travel right. to. Why should it be any different? That's and that's our argument. Why are we being treated differently because of it's because of propaganda and ignorance? Yeah. And we have to flip that dial. We have to to change that conversation, and we'll continue. <clears throat> pardon me to do that. <clears throat> so election night, we win fifty three percent. And then, the, you know, next day we're told that special session is going to be coming on December 8th. Mm-hmm. So, or December 3rd, excuse me. So, um, December 1st, the law goes into effect. So, as of defe- December 1st, 2018, Prop 2 was legal. We were a legal state on that date. And two days later, that was on a Saturday, two days later on a Monday, they held a special session 
and did a replace and repeal and put in a whole different new bill. Um, it had some similarities, you know, some things for the patients that are just traditionally the same in every state. Mm-hmm. Um, but they put in a, a thing called central fill, which was dispensing medical cannabis through health departments and then leaving it to the counties to actually pay for the revisions of the health departments to supply this out to to the rest of the community. There were other language put in there that were putting dosing parameters on this, telling doctors that they had to write a dosing parameters, which is effectively a prescription, which is against the law. They can't do that. mm -hmm. And if the physician refuses to write dosing parameters, that's the language that's used, even though it's defined as a prescription, the doctor refuses, it's then left up to the pharmacist. So they're putting pharmacists and dispensaries and saying, the pharmacist then has to write the dosing parameters if the doctor's not willing to risk his DEA license. Yeah. You get one pound of weed, ma'am. <laughs> well, in no real-world <laughs> practice do pharmacists write prescriptions no. or right. recommendations for anything. No. I mean, they can tell you, oh, that over-the-counter drug might work better than this one because there's different ingredients in it. But they're not prescribing things for people. And so it was really problematic with some of these little nuances that the opposition was feeding into here, putting flour and blister pack. That destroys the plant. That destroys the cannabinoids that rest on the outside of this delicate plant. All these little nuances that they were doing, my former ally was accommodating the opposition and throwing the patients under the bus. Well, the whole movement is for patients. It's not here to make the opposition feel comfortable and warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we put in regulations to make sure things are safe, but the overdoing of it to, to negate their fears is, is counterproductive to what patients were needing access to. So it was really frustrating to watch my ally. I feel like he didn't hear anything we said <laughs> all these years. Um, it became very bitter. It became very, it was really hard because he was, he was a champion in my eyes. He was a champion for patients in my eyes. I mean, I remember <laughs> meeting with Forrest and our friend Jeb, uh, Jeff Bell mm-hmm. on their podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We, we you, got, you know those guys well, too. Have you guys, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. We know Jeff. He's been on our show. I've, I've been on his show. Yeah. So I was on a podcast with Jeff and, and <laughs> Forrest. And before we get in there, you know, they, you know, they warn me, you know, they take shots at, at <laughs> Connor and, and Mark and, you know, the lot. And I'm like, well, for now, please don't. You know, they're they're trying to, I mean, we're trying to work across party lines here. I get, you know, you guys are Dems and they're those evil, you know, GOPers. But for now, we're just we're just human beings that are suffering. And they were really good about doing that. I text Jeff the other day. I'm like, damn it. I wish I didn't tell you to be nice. Because <laughs> 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 okay, fuck those guys. I'm so frustrated. <laughs> no, it's still hard. It's still, it's still hard. It still hurts. Um, cause I know probably in the back of my allies, my former allies mind, he thinks he's doing good. Um, but he's doing what's politically expedient and not what is, um, right. Not what integrity would tell you to do. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a patient advocate. I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not a political wonk. I'm not out here to, I'm not out here to win friends. I am here for one purpose and that's to get medication safely in the hands of patients. That's my, my goal and my objective. And when I see policy that goes into place that makes that damn near impossible, you're going to have me on your bad side. So then I sue the state. Yay. <laughs> that was the segue. <laughs> <laughs> So um, when all this went down, I, I had told Mark Madsen about my meeting with the church and that um, 
I was just floored with this email. I sent him the copy of the email and he's like, do not negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> You're winning. Don't give in to them. Don't give in. You're winning. Hold the line. And I did. I held the line. Even when he didn't, I held the line for the patients. And I continue to hold the line for the patients. We we decided to reach out to Rocky Anderson. Well, and why wouldn't you at that point? I mean, you've at that point, you'd had the ballot initiative. You've gotten all of the signatures. It's passed. Like, why? Why would you compromise on that point? Because it was, this is what the people wanted. This is what they voted for. This right. is what they're expecting. You run. Why would I compromise that away? Because then exactly. that's going to reflect poorly on my work and my integrity as a person who acted in good faith to to as a advocate for these patients who want this. Exactly. You understand integrity. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's that's exactly my point. We had asked people to trust us. We are going to run with this ball. Trust us. We need your help and your support to get this across the finish line. And I felt a strong obligation to do that. Like I said, Connor's objectives were different. You know, um, he he claims that he had internal polling that was showing that we weren't going to pass. He's working with a, a group, Marijuana Policy Project, who has done that tactic before. They say they have internal polling that says it's not going to pass, so they negotiate with the legislators. They have stakeholders that they answer to, and they have quarterlies, and they have licensing, and and they represent industry. So if you go with somebody who wants to shrink how many licenses are available, what happens to those licenses? If you only have eight licenses that are available for growing, they become more profitable. Mm -hmm. This is all about money. Um, when you shrink how many dispensing sites that you have for patients, what happens? You limit how big the program can grow, but also you make those those licenses profitable. So at the end of the day, what we have in place is not policy that helps patient access. It's helping somebody. Somebody's coffers are getting lined, but it's not helping patients get access. As the law stands right now, we have, and this is why we're heading into a special session, um, we were able to convince the district attorneys and um, the county commissioners that they don't want to jeopardize their health department funding with the federal government, and they have chosen to refuse to engage. Um, the DA from Davis County, my DA, Troy Rollins, and Sim, the DA for Salt Lake um, County, both said that they refuse to participate. They're counseling their people to refuse to participate because they can't protect them. If a city and county employee decides to be part of this program and dispensing cannabis and it's federally illegal, there's nothing that Sim can do to protect them. The federal government can do whatever. Preemption. And that mm-hmm. was the basis of our lawsuit was the preemption clause. There were other other issues that we have in our lawsuit, doctor and patient concerns that we have, and there are a few details that I won't get into, but it was the dosing parameters, the patient caps, the access to flour that wasn't in blister pack. So there's a few of those other patient and doctor concerns. And then the other third point that is very important for our listeners to hear and understand was the right to the initiative. That's part of our lawsuit. In the Utah Constitution, it says that the legislative body and the voters are of equal plane and they can legislate equally. We have the right to the initiative for that reason. It does also state that the legislature can make uh, minor tweaks and changes, but they don't define what that is. So we've saw this whole replacement. Yeah, what bill, is minor? Yeah. In right, their minds. technical changes. And yeah. so we saw that whole replacement bill happen. 
And we started challenging, well, does the initiative process have any weight in this state? Does it does it well, really mean anything? Because you just pissed all over the voters. I mean, seriously, we came out, we voted for something that we worked hard for making accomplish, and you just ripped it away. So we're challenging, is there a right to an initiative in this state? Is it really substantive? Because if it isn't, then it's, why is it in there? And yeah. if it is, why does it not have teeth? Um, so Rocky's moving forward on that part of our lawsuit. Because of that preemption clause where we had the, the county commissioners saying, hey, we can't really dispense this through our health departments. The DAs were saying we're not going to protect your employees. That's making us – it's triggered a special session. So September 16th – you guys will air this on the 13th. September 16th <laughs> will be the special session. So if you're curious about this issue and you're frustrated about what happened, you want to make your way to Capitol Hill at 6 o'clock Monday night – to be there, to listen, to participate. And if you hear this podcast before, then call your legislator. Talk to them about how these laws are affecting you personally. Share your story. You know, if you're a medical cannabis patient, share them. Share with them. Because they need to bring that information to their colleagues. As much as they poo-poo on the legislators, they also can be the best allies for you if you develop a rapport and a good working relationship with them. Right now I'm in the doghouse <laughs> and that's fine. I'll be here until whenever, <laughs> but I'm, I'm okay with being the one that's got the loudest bark. You know, my, my job is put the fire under their heels so that they move forward. If I back away, I don't know if things will continue to get done. So where do we stand now as far as legality and, and what, like I'm so confused through, you know, <laughs> When when you look at the ballot initiative and then what they've done to rewrite it and the lawsuit now, like where where do we stand as far as legality for for cannabis in Utah? We have a, a we have a law in place. The law is a bit um, it's a bit convoluted. It's a, there's a lot of a bit a bit. It really <laughs> is. I mean, talking to my other friends and advocates in other states, they're like, that is just wow. There's a lot of hoop jumping. So right now we're in uh, the affirmative defense phase. So since last year in December, um, when it passed to March 2020 of next year, we're in this affirmative defense phase. If you get a letter from your doctor stating that you have a disease or condition on the on the conditions list. You can possess cannabis if it is in blister pack, if flowers in blister pack, if you only have gelatinous cube um, edibles. So you can't have any kind of edibles except for gelatinous cube. So like the gummies, right? No, no, no. Oh. They're gelatinous cubes. They can't, they can't look like bears. They can't look like discs. They oh, have they to have be to look like cubes. Cubanoids. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They have to be yes. flavorless. Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so you have to, and you can't, you can have oils and tinctures and stuff like that, but they all at one point had to have barcodes on them and all kinds of other nonsense. None of that stuff is really legal because you have to purchase everything outside of yeah. the state. Yeah. So, and then to bring it in or purchase it illegally off the traditional market. And so we're, we're really not in a, it's a gray area. It's the Wild West right now, and it's really left up to law enforcement and judges on how they're going to prosecute patients. I've had many patients reach out to me. I've followed their cases through the courts. I've had patients who have presented their letter 
and their letter didn't mean anything. The judge says this law isn't in effect until 2020, and they throw the books at him. Mm. I've had patients who presented their case and had only paraphernalia charges. I've had patients who have, at the site of interaction with law enforcement, gave the law enforcement their medication that they had, only to have it returned back to them except for the stuff that contained THC. They only gave back the CBD gummies. Um, I've had patients who's gone into court and just got a plea in advance. There's just a lot of different scenarios playing out and no rhyme or reason. And that's got to stop. We've got to we have to get policy in place that makes sense for everybody so that a judge can say, hey, what's working in Salt Lake works down in, in Moab. You know, it's got to be consistent across the board. It's best for law enforcement, too. They don't want to be in a situation where they don't know what the law is. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we're at. Mm-hmm. We don't. We don't know, like, you know, Salt Lake's going to be far more liberal. You know, UHP, maybe not so much. You know, maybe if you're over in Duchesne, you're not going to have, you know, as good of an encounter with law enforcement as somebody else. So we need we need something in place that makes sense, really. Yeah, it's been really difficult to try to keep track of everything because and it's it changing so quickly, it seems like it. I it mean, does. You know, when you look at the bill and it's, you know, over a hundred pages long and you think that you've got it down and then you, then you realize, oh no, they made changes to it in this section, this section, and this section. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what's going to pass. But then they go ahead and make other changes and then they propose other things and it's just. It's hard to keep up with. And, yeah. and they move so quickly to keep the public away. It's just, I don't like special sessions. I don't because there's no public input. That being said, (laughs) this will be after the fact, but on Monday, this coming Monday, they will have the committee hearing and public can come in and say Mm. something. But like I said, they just got the bill on Friday, a hundred pages. The public who is not policy wonks got a hundred page bill on Friday and on Monday is when the legislators are going to be discussing it. And that's the only opportunity the public has. That's it. That's nuts. That's not process. That is that is politicking behind closed doors. It's the same shit that we've been dealing with mm-hmm. with these guys for years and years and years now, and I'm so over it. <laughs> well, and, and the ambiguity with the law and and with no regulation and, and people not knowing what the law is leads to all kinds of problems. We've seen, uh, you know, it's been headlines in the news lately over the past month or so, all of the problems that they're, you know, the CDC is recommending that people not use vape of any kind and from everything that i've read and i've read quite a bit of it because i i vape Mm -hmm. um and everything that i've seen is all pointing to black market uh thc extractions that that people are getting sick from vitamin e oil extract being in being in these black market uh vape things that they're using in their vape pens and they're still just i mean by the time this airs out we'll learn a lot more too yeah but they're still learning more about that they're Mm -hmm. not entirely sure that they're gonna put it all on vitamin e because there are some patients that are getting sick that didn't have that it's not testing up in the stuff that they use so that still needs to work its way out but the problem with all of that it's an unregulated market. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the problem. There's no set standards. And that's true and indicative of cannabis through across the board. That's why I need federal prohibition to end. Mm-hmm. We need to start regulating yeah. this in, in a very mindful way. Um, but, you know, we're playing games on the federal level, too, and on the international level. There's we, we have the who is going to be possibly pushing policy at the end of this year, but more likely next year. They'll probably 
change scheduling from for them. It'll go from the a World one Health to Organization. A four. That's right. Yeah. We'll go from not the band. Come I on, wish it was the band with me. <laughs> who, is, who is pushing it? Who is who? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm on board. Um, but we're waiting for rescheduling on the international level because we have we're part of a treaty. United mm. States, you know, triggered this this a uh, single. The Single Act Treaty on medical cannabis, on on drugs in general, back in 1961, Anslinger spearheaded that. So we have to change our international laws so that our federal laws can take an effect. Canada doesn't give two shits. They're already they're like, <laughs> catch up, guys. <laughs> they're already they're already selling it. They're already doing all kinds of stuff. But I think um, if we can get something movement on the international level, I think. I think the United States might feel a little more comfortable about maybe ending prohibition. You know, we need to do more than changing it to from a one to a two. That doesn't do anything. That's just process. That's just saying, okay, we've changed scheduling from a one to a two. That means now we can do some research. We need to really open it up, get it down to a three or a four, and let's really start seeing what this can do. You know, there's, there's a lot of potential. Mm. A lot of potential. I think there's been plenty of research done. For access, for sure. But people are, are wanting to know a little bit more about disease states. They, yeah. You know, that's that's what would yeah. be interesting is to see what cultivar, a.k.a. strand, works well for MS. It may not work for all MS patients, but if you start digging down into which cannabinoid is really starting to trigger helping with spasticity and all these other different components, that would be fascinating. And not to put it into a pharmaceutical stamp brand model bottle kind of thing, just this is what the botanical can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're going to want to package it. It's capitalism. It is what it yeah. is. <laughs> I guess as far as research, I'm like, you know, the state of Utah says, we need more research in this. It's like, no, you don't. You know it's safe. It's mm-hmm. not harmful. And you have no problems giving people fucking heroin. Well, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So, so any last imp- any last words that you'd like to impart to our listeners about what they can do to help or, or where they can go for more information? You can always follow us on our social media. So Truce Utah on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Our website is truceutah.org. If you want to help donate, we run just on donations from the community. I am not funded by big business or anybody right now. We do this because we love the patients and we care about the issue and we want to do what's right. So if you you support what we do, please donate. It's tremendous help. And also educate yourself. You have an active endocannabinoid system that needs cannabis. So my my parting my parting thoughts to you is feed your endocannabinoid system. <laughs> Load up a bowl. <laughs> feed your endocannabinoid system. Oh. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming over. This was Absolutely. this was a lot of fun. This was I learned a ton today. Oh, and, awesome. And I plan on learning a lot more, I'm sure as as this continues to go forward. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. This was awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. This is Dr. Hector Garcia, author of Alpha God and Sex, Power, and Partisanship, and you are listening to Godless Revolution. You go in there. I go in there. And you make me tell you all my secrets so you can ultimately trap and control me. Yeah. (laughs) No, you tell me what's weighing on your heart, and I listen without judgment and in complete confidence. Sounds dodgy. I just, listen, at the very least it will shut me up for a minute. I'm not a Catholic. Tonight, that doesn't matter. Well, I catch fire or something. If you did, it would confirm my faith, so let's try it. 
If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! What a delightful guest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed listening to her talking and, and talking with her. She's Anybody can be a stoner, right? That's easy. Anybody <laughs> any, anybody can just be like, yeah, man, weed's pretty great. I, I dig it. It's fucking, it's pretty cool. It just makes me chill out and blah, blah, blah. Anybody can do that. Any, and, and anybody suffering from, from a medical condition, you know, not anybody can get it easily, but you can get it and just use it in your own home, in the privacy yeah. of your own home to, to help mitigate problems that you may be having. But to, work as tirelessly and as hard as someone like Christine does, it's obvious that she's not doing it for herself. She is very concerned about the quality of life for other people and wants mm-hmm. to ensure that they have access to the th- to the thing that has made such a big difference in her life. She mm-hmm. wants everybody else to be able to experience that as well. If it would, if it can help them. And I just think that's awesome. I think that's wonderfully compassionate and, empathetic and she's a great example of what everybody else should be doing if there's something you're passionate about that can help other people you should do that as much as you can and that's that's just very cool she's just a genuinely yeah warm fucking wonderful person and i even kind of thought about it when we're when she was talking and i just i figured like we all kind of let her go yeah uh yeah but you know when she for the 16 years that she spent in her own little personal jail People were going to jail for using and selling the thing that broke her out of jail. Yeah, for a plant. It's yeah. just weird and silly and stupid. And then then just all of the bullshit that she's had to go through in dealing with all of these different groups and with the legislature here locally that, yeah, it's really frustrating to put in all of that time and effort only to have it gutted by people yeah. who aren't interested in just doing what's best for people who want to make a dime. Yeah. Who want to make a dime or who have some other ulterior motive based on their religious beliefs Mm. or their other political beliefs, you know, something they're, they're more concerned about something else other than just helping people. You know, the one thing that they should be concerned about, especially as a representative in a public, in a position of public trust is to help the people that put you in office. Yeah. And they're not, they're more concerned with, maintaining that power and holding on to office versus doing what is best for the people who they're supposed to be representing. Mm -hmm. And that's really fucking frustrating. Yep. I would be very angry if I was her. She's, and she's not Mm. like, I mean, clearly she's frustrated by some of the things that have gone on, but she's still just fighting in the trenches and doing what she can to, to improve the lives of other people. And I think that's Mm -hmm. admirable. It's, it's fucking awesome. She's really cool. Yeah. I was very excited to have her here. Um, so I said that we, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is starting to go a little bit, I think. My, maybe my throat's just dry. But, so last week we talked about cancer and about brandy and about my head. And <laughs> this week we had Christine in and talked about a bunch of other cancer patients and everything. Um, and in the process of editing the show last week, I thought, well, fuck, why don't, you know, I, I had said that we were going to make a donation. So I made a donation. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, we don't make a lot on Patreon. <laughs> like it pays, it almost pays for beer and pizza, mm-hmm. 
like almost pays for that. It doesn't pay for the equipment and the hosting and all of that other shit, but it almost pays for beer and pizza. And I thought, well, I'll, I would be buying beer and pizza either way. So why don't we take that money and we'll give that to Brandy? So, um, I contacted you guys after mm-hmm. I was pretty much done editing and, and had that thought and said, Hey, what do you guys think about just giving all of our Patreon earnings to Brandy through the end of the year? And you both were like, yeah, thumbs up. Yeah. That's a great idea. I basically so. said, mm-hmm. you dumbass, why'd you even have to ask that question? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why the fuck would you bother us with such a stupid question? Just fucking do it. Um, no, but yeah, you guys were both on board and I think that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, just letting, uh, the, our listeners know that we will be contributing all of our Patreon earnings, uh, for the rest of the year to Brandy directly, uh, into her GoFundMe account. So. Thank you, everybody who is a Patreon patron. And, uh, I also shared a link to Brandy's GoFundMe page in the show notes for the last episode. So mm-hmm. you can go out there and donate to her directly if you would like. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you all very much for doing it. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Thank you, Christine, for coming on the show and, and talking about all of that. I'm, I'm sorry I made you cry <laughs> a few different times. <laughs> um, but that again is just, it points to just how genuinely invested she is in helping other people because it's such a personal story for her and is something that changed her life in a fundamental way. Oh, yeah. gave her back a, a quality of life, a, a standard of living that she, I'm sure after 16 years figured she would never experience again. So, and that's got to be really, really exciting. It's I'm sure that's why she's so passionate about it is, that it literally changed her life and, and has made her quality of life so much better. And she'd like to extend that offer to other people to okay. see if it can help them. So they don't have to spend 16 years in pain. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that will wrap things up for us tonight. I think, did you guys have anything else uh, you want to talk about? Thank the, thank the, Patreon. Oh yeah. Well, we, yeah, yeah, we need yeah, to thank okay. our Patreon supporters yeah. for sure. Um, I just wanted to make sure that before I, Jumped into that. <laughs> We'd gotten everything else out. Um, but yes, let's move to thanking our Patreon supporters. These are the people who make the show go. They keep things running, keep us sending money to Brandy <laughs> <laughs> and, and buying pizza and beer. Um, but that would be Alan Firth, New Mania, Christy Kalbach, Gatheist, Stephen Andrews, Let Them Eat Cafefe, Two Skeptical Chaps, Vanessa, Don't Be a Richard, Utah Outcasts. Wesley Aaron, Andrew Vodapich, Jeremy Goodson, Brandy Hamrick, Megan Kennedy, The Falls, uh, Jesse Pointer, 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 yeah, <laughs> Bobby Digital, <laughs> Janet Uter, Savita Kuna, Taylor Grin, The Purple Dragon, uh, Captain Samples, Freethinker215, and Reverend Lovejoy support recovering from religion, and our newest Patreon supporter, Corey Ebert. I hope Thank I didn't. All. Hope I didn't murder your name, Corey. Uh, I hope, I hope it's no, pronounced. I, I think Ebert. it's Corey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, right. Yes. It is Corey. I'm pretty sure. Uh, write into us and let us know if, if I did get that wrong. But thank you all very much. And thank you, our newest Patreon supporter. Uh, everybody else who is listening should also thank these people as the sponsors of the show. You don't have to listen to other shitty commercials during yeah. the show because yes. of them. So thank you all very much. And so until next week, crucify cancer. Leave a review for Little Purple Haze. And rate the show five times a day toward recreational. <laughs> Hi, this is Christine Stenquist. I am the truce... Damn it. I'm the truce, damn it. <laughs> <laughs>
And thanks for listening to the Godless Dammits. <laughs> you got this. I know. Take three. All right. Hi, this is Christine Stenquist with Truce, together with Sponsibly. Damn it, started. <laughs> All right. Together with Sponsibly. Oh, oh, fuck. <laughs> this might make it in the show. Just <laughs> that was fantastic. Was it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> very, very nicely done. Super, super job. Oh, guys, you are so much fun. <laughs> we try to be. This is a good fun on a Sunday. Yay! Yeah. I'm glad you had fun. It's been awesome. Better than church. Here. It absolutely is better than church, <laughs> for sure.